Hello there. Welcome to another episode of MA Fight Club. I'm your host, Manny Galarza. Today we're breaking down UFC Vegas 43, the full card featuring the main event with Caitlin Vera versus the legendary Misha Tate. Co-main event's going to be Michael Chiesa versus Sean Brady. There's 12 total bouts in this card. No championships, but a lot of action. We've got five fights in the main card, seven for the prelims. We'll go over each fight, one fight at a time, giving you some background information on each of the fighters, discussing some of the prop bets and the betting angles that we like. We'll start with the prelims, work our way up all the way through the main card. Now, if you're new to this channel or you don't know, in the description there, you're going to find links to prior fights of the fighters that are on this card. And there's a full library there, usually two to three links for each of the fighters. So you can go back and check out, at the click of a button, two to three prior fights of the fighters we're talking about today. And if you're gambling on the action, gambling on this card here, don't take my advice. Look at some of the prior fights. See some of the trends that you might be picking up on. You might see something that we're not picking up on as well. Um, with all that said, we'll jump into the prelims right now with the first fight night. Here we go. The second fight in the prelim card is going to be another women's bout in the strawweight division between the Brazilian fighter Luana Pinero and the American Sam Hughes. Sam Hughes, who goes by Sam Page, she's 5-3 and three overall. She hails from Everett, Washington, 29 years old, 5'5 five five in height, with a 64.5-inch reach. She's training out of Catalyst MMA. As for Luana, she's 9-1 overall. She's 28 years old, 5-0 in her last five fights. Five, five foot four in height, excuse me, with a 62-inch reach. She's coming out of BH Rhinos. Now, according to public vote, Panero's getting a lot of love here. About 95% of the votes coming in from Tapology are for Panero and only 5% here for Sam Hughes. I get it. Um, nine and one, it looks good. Um, you know, Panero's got, you know, some striking ability. Um, I think uh, when you look at, you know, some of the boxes in terms of, you know, who's better at, let's say, you know, technique-wise or who's better with um, jiu-jitsu, you know, there's a lot of reasons why Panero has advantages. But I want to talk about the last fight that Panero's coming off of. And if you haven't watched it, take a look at the link in the description. She's coming off of a win against Ronda Marcos. Now, Ronda Marcos at that time was in a bit of a tough spell. And uh, Luana came in as a minus 155 favorite. And the fight starts getting very tough, okay? It's getting grappling. Um, and if you know Ronda Marcos, that's what she wants to do. And she's starting to give Luana Panero a hard time. Now, the fight's close. Maybe you can give round one to Luana. But at the very end of round one... Luana is sort of in a, a top position, but trying to like, you know, manage the legs from um, Marcos and, and Marcos is throwing up kicks, throwing up kicks, or whatever. And at the time, Luana's on a knee still, so it's not legal to kick her. And what ends up happening is, you know, Marcos hits her with a knee, or, I'm sorry, with a kick, like an up kick kind of. And you see, I mean, you can slow this down as much as you want to. You can see it. You can see that Luana takes the kick, head snaps back, looks up at the ref. And then just falls back down, like does this thing you would you would show a you know a fifth grader how to act on a stage like when you fall down like the fake gunshot just fall down like this and put your arms to the side. I'm not kidding you. Slow it down. At the time I watched the fight, uh, my first replay of you know the few watching that knockout, I was like, oh, I'm not sure. You don't want to question a fighter, but when you frame by frame break it down, she gets kicked. It's not a super hard kick. It is to the face area. She literally snaps her head back. She takes a good look at the referee and then falls back like she's an actress. And so this concerns me because in that fight, she came in eight and one. She came in as the favorite. She came in as someone who should have been beating someone like Ronda Marcos. Ronda Marcos had come into that fight on a three fight losing streak. She lost against Mackenzie Dern, Rebus, Amanda Rebus. She, ran, she lost against Kanako Romarata. And then she goes ahead and loses now again for the fourth fight in what? The fifth fight in like six fights that she had lost. She was on a terrible losing streak. Rumor was that Marcos was going to lose her contract if she lost the fight. So in that moment, it, the fight is getting grapply. I, I actually thought Marcos could have won the fight. It was round one. It was early. I think Luana realizes I'm in, I'm in over my head here and ends up faking this, this kick, gets a win by disqualification. So 
Um, and Marcos just won her most recent fight, so she's actually shaking off the losing bug and actually getting into the win column. With all that said, Luana now um, comes back in her next, you know, uh, coming back now into her next fight, and she's fighting here another grappler. She's fighting another person who likes to make it ugly, um, and that's my concern, is what if now when she gets in the clinch here with Sam Hughes, that Sam Hughes is just making it ugly enough, dragging her down enough. And some people say, oh, well, Luana's got great jiu-jitsu. Jiu she may have good jiu-jitsu, but I didn't love the way that she was getting manhandled by Marcos. I didn't like the way that the older fighter in Marcos was getting the better of her. And when you look at the way Luana fights, it's her striking that's beautiful. It's that long kick. It's that the jab, her quick hands, good footwork. Um, that's what really separates her. So my concern here is the money line, when it does come out, it's not out yet, is going to be on the side of Luana Panero, and I don't want to be on that. Um, I think I want to be on the dog side here, even though I do acknowledge when you're talking about just straight skill level, Panero's got the better striking skills, maybe even has a little edge in her fighter IQ. She is 9-1 to start her career compared to 5-3 and three for Sam Hughes. Sam Hughes, with a loss here, falls to 5-4, and four, becomes more or less a 500-level fighter at that point and is in risk of maybe possibly losing her contract. So when we're talking about grappling, though, the grappling advantage, I do say I would Sam Hughes there. Boxing-wise, finishing-wise, I'm on the side of Luana Panero. Cardio-wise, just about equal. So look, is there a world where Sam Hughes comes in here, uglies things up, you know, drags uh, Panero into her realm, gets some back control, gets some back time. I, I, I thought that's what was happening with Ronda Marcos, and I thought that was going to be a problem there for Luana. So I'm just putting it out there. I'm going to have to be on the side of the dog here with Sam Hughes. I'm going to go with the American fighter. I think she busts up Luana's streak here. I think Luana showed a, a chink in the armor with that last fight. I think once she started getting pressed by an older fighter in Marcos, I mean, look, you got to realize Ronda Marcos is 36 years old. Okay, so that was a fighter that, you know, put Luana recently in a tough position. And when you look at Luana's record, yes, yeah, she's got all these wins. Okay, but she's only fought once in the UFC, and that was one win that she has over Ronda Marcos. And, and that win was kind of, you know, whatever, a legal upkick, not really sure. So, you know, she's coming off of a nice contender series win against uh, Frosto. That was back in 2020. It was, it was a TKO in round one, so that was impressive. But before that, you know, it's Brave CF, it's, it's um, some lower-level fighting promotions. She's getting guillotine chokes, submissions, and punches. I think when she got in there with Marcos back in May of this year, it was one of those levels things like, oh, wait, wait a second. You know, I'm coming in here. It's a little different. UFC veteran. Um, and not that Ronda Marcos is an amazing fighter, but she started giving her problems. I think Sam Hughes, a lot like Ronda Marcos. I mean, I'd say Ronda Marcos is a little bit better than Sam Hughes at this point. But the point is, I don't think Sam Hughes is going to make this easy for her. I think he's going to make it ugly for her. And when you look at Sam Hughes, for example, she lost against Luke um, Loma Luke Lubume recently. So that was back in May. And that's a good comparison because I think Loma is similar to um, uh, Luana in terms of striking. So if you like Lu Lu uh, Lu Luana to win the fight here, you're looking back at that fight with Loma in May and you're saying that's probably how this works out for Sam Hughes. She gets picked apart, can't keep up with, you know, the striking ability. But hey, you know, when you're looking at a veteran like Sam Hughes, she's been in there for a little bit. Um, she knows what she's doing as well. Um, she's fought a few more fights, you know, in terms of top level. She's got some LFA fights under her belt. She has fought and lost her first two UFC fights. She's due for a win. Um, maybe some hometown. I don't know. Rub, even though it's fight night cage and it's going to be, you know, a small little audience. Anyway, all that said, uh, watch out for the numbers when they come out. I'm sure Panera's going to be a favorite, maybe two to one, maybe even higher than that. And I think at that point, you're going to want to take a look here at Sam Hughes um, as a dog play. Now, am I confident with this? Am I going to be putting a lot of money on Sam Hughes? No, I just don't have a lot of confidence in Luana. In that last fight there with Marcos, I want to see a little more from her. I want to see what happens when she gets 
pushed and grappled in round two and three and see how she responds. I have some questions about just her core strength. We'll see what happens here, but I like Sam Hughes. All right, so next up on the card, we've got a featherweight bout between Shailene Nudembeke from China and Sean Soriano from the United States. Soriano is 14-7 and seven overall, 3-2 and two in his last five fights. He hails specifically from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 32 years old, 5'9", and highway 71-inch reach. He trains at the Black Zillions. As for Shailene Nudembeke, who goes by the Wolverine, he's 19-7 and seven overall, 3-2 and two in his last five fights. He's 27 years old, 5'8", and highway 69-inch reach. He's out of Longu MMA Gym. So height and reach-wise, Sean's going to have a slight 1-inch height advantage and a 2-inch reach advantage. Shouldn't play too much into the fight. Uh, Gym-wise, I do give an advantage there to Sean Soriano. He's got some very, very good teammates there at Black Zillions. Longo MMA gym is a good gym, but not quite the level um, of Black Zillions. Now, according to public vote, Soriano is the favorite here, getting 83% of the votes compared to 17% of the votes coming in for Shaylin. I agree. I like Soriano to win the fight. The money line also reflects that the, the money is coming in for Soriano. He's a minus 275 favorite. Uh, on the other side, you can get Shaylin at plus 210. Probably by the time fight comes around, it's going to be like minus 300, minus 325. So if you do like Soriano, you want to lock that bet in here early in the week. Now let's look here at some more particulars about the fighters. And, and looking at their striking numbers, it kind of tells you how they fight and their fighting style. So for Shaylin, he's landing 1.13 strikes per minute. He's absorbing 3.53. So yeah, I'm going to repeat that. He's landing just over one strike per minute. And he's absorbing just over three and a half strikes per minute. On the other side here for Sean Suyano, he's landing three and a half strikes per minute. He's absorbing 2.5. So clearly there's more output. There's more striking output for a fighter like Sean Suyano compared to uh, what Shailene's output is like. And again, that's 1.13 strikes landed per minute. So it, it tells you a lot about how, they, how you fight, right? So for takedown defense, Shailene's got 100% takedown defense compared to 53% takedown defense for Suyano. Shailen's landing two takedowns per fight um, as opposed to one takedown per fight here for Soriano. So clearly this tells you a little bit about Shailen. When you watch film on Shailen, look at his last fight against Joshua Kulaba. About 30 seconds into the fight, he's got himself a double leg takedown. He's working. He's working against the fence. He's pushing Joshua up against the fence. What appears to be like a takedown that he should secure and should have turned into like a minute and a half of him struggling to try to find some way that he can pull this guy to the ground. And so he does get the takedown on Joshua, but he exudes so much energy. And so what ends up happening with like a minute left to go in round one, he's tired. So now Joshua's starting to measure range, land the front leg kicks, um, landing the counters, landing combinations. And you see now Joshua Kalaba sizing him up. And maybe round one still goes to Shailene. I think most people would have Shailene winning round one because of position control. By the end of round one, he can't do much with the takedowns. He can't keep position control on the bottom. Um, he's starting to get tagged up on his feet. And so when round two comes out, he waits for about almost two minutes into the round before he tries to take down. It's easily defended by Joshua. And there goes the rest of the fight. So round two and three, Joshua Kolab is able to defend almost every takedown attempt. And even when he gets taken down, he gets up easily. Shailene's just not good on his feet in terms of boxing. His boxing defense is not very good. He doesn't protect his front leg, so his front leg was getting chewed up. On the flip side, look at Sean Suriano. His last fight, it was a late call-up, okay? It was a 10-pound heavier fight at 155. He fights Chris, Christos Giagos. He beats up Giagos in round one. He stuns Giagos. His counter-punching was beautiful. He was laying left-right. Um, he defends the takedown attempts. And so you're looking at that fight, and you're thinking, Giagos is a pretty good wrestler. I think he's comparable to Shailene. And it's 10 pounds heavier. And Sean was able to defend those takedowns on late notice. He looked very good. I do want to mention for Sean Suriano, this is his second time around in the UFC. Back in 2014, seven years ago, he was 25 years old at the time. He went on a three-fight losing streak in the UFC, lost his opportunity to fight in the UFC. Now he's back. He takes the fight last minute against Giagos earlier this year. Hold his own. Does a great job. He's getting out this opportunity here against Shailene. And I believe he's going to light up Shailene on the feet. 
And even though Shailene's got a pretty good chin, he'll try to wrestle, but G but Ciarno could defend himself. He could defend the takedowns. And I do see Shailene kind of gassing out again, getting a little bit tired, being forced to fight on his feet. And in that case, you're looking at a situation where Sean Ciarno should walk away with two of these three rounds with no problem, winning the striking battle, higher output, and then that front lower leg kick, okay? So if Shailene does not protect the front leg, he can't fight in both stances. He's just an orthodox fighter. The front leg is going to get chewed up. I'm not saying the fight will end because of that, but it's going to be such a significant part of the fight. It's going to leave Shailene in a situation where he's going to be only forced to try to wrestle. And if he can't wrestle, he'll be on his feet getting tagged up. And dare I say, I wouldn't be even surprised if Sean Soriano could land himself a TKO victory against Giagos. He had Giagos really hurt in round one. He had him on those Bambi legs at one point. So... I do like Serrano to win the fight. I think at minus 275, you're going to want to lock it in early if you can in the week because by the time the fight comes around, this will be a parlay piece at that point. And I, I will be using it as a parlay piece. I do like Soriano. Um, some other things about both fighters. They're both coming off of losses in the UFC, and they're both coming off of, a, for example, their most recent UFC fight. So for uh, Shailen, he fought his first UFC fight against Joshua Kalaba. He lost that fight for Soriano. His second time around, he gets his fight against Giagos. Um, things are going well. He ends up with a loss. You kind of feel bad for the guy. But look, I liked what I saw from Sean Soriano. Check out the link in the description. You can see that fight against Giagos. And for Shailene as well, you can see the fight when he fought against uh, Joshua Kulaba. Um, line, lining up side by side, I think experience-wise, very, very similar. But then you got to give a slight edge to Soriano because of the fact this is his, what, fifth now UFC fight. Yes, he's lost all four of the prior UFC fights. But especially in the last one, he held his own, showed he's got you know some experience. Both of them have decent fighter IQ. They know how to grapple. They know how to use their advantages. Um, I think Soriano is more effective in using his game and his game plan in this fight. But uh, cardio-wise, I'm giving an edge to Soriano because I just watched uh, Shailen in his last fight against Joshua Kulaba kind of gas out a little bit. He was not the same fighter in round two and three. He couldn't get the takedowns. His takedown attempts got sloppier and sloppier. He was unable to execute much, much beyond that. And so I do give an edge for cardio to Soriano. Um, I also love, again, the fact that Soriano in his last fight fought 10 pounds heavier and defended takedown attempts against a pretty good wrestler in Giagos. Finishing ability, I like Soriano's punching game. I think that he can finish a fight. He's got strong hands, um, good counter punches. Um, Boxing-wise, big advantage again to Soriano over here, Shailen. And then in terms of grappling, I think they're about even. I do respect the fact that Shailen does know how to wrestle a little bit. Um, he's not great at it, but he does work some different angles. He's pretty strong in the clinch. Um, if he's short up his cardio, then maybe that could be some way that he can you know, pull an upset here. But from all intents and purposes, I do like Soriano a lot. I'm going to like him as a parlay piece. And if he doesn't finish Shailen with a TKO, I think he finishes the fight by decision. I'm mean, Not finishes by decision, but if it finishes a decision win for him. So that's a breakdown, guys. Next up, we got a flyweight bout here between Cody Durden, the American fighter, and Arichi Lang, the Chinese fighter. Now, Arichi Lang specifically hails from Inner Mongolia, so he goes by the Mongolian murderer. He's 18-8 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. The money line has these guys at even pick of money, so minus 105 either side. Arichi Lang is 28 years old, 5'7 in height, and he's got a 69-inch reach. He's out of Indu Martial Arts Club. As for Cody Durden, he's 11-3-1 overall, 3-1-1 in his last five fights. He hails specifically from Georgia, 30 years old, 5'7 in height with 67-inch reach. He's out of American Top Team Atlanta. Now, according to the money line, like I said, money line's got him even, but Tapology has Durden as a strong favorite, getting 65% of the votes compared to 35% votes coming in for Arichi Lang. I'm thinking that's because the Asian fighters have been doing not so great this year, so maybe people are just fading the Mongolian murderer um, initially without looking further into the fight. I like Arichi Lang to win the fight. Uh, well, let's talk about it. Arichi Lang in his last fight squared up against Jeff Molina. Molina's a pretty good fighter. Um, he just fought recently as well, and Molina's carrying himself, what, he's got a record of 2-0 uh, and in the UFC after his after winning the Contender Series. So Molina's a decent, decent fighter, decent prospect, right? Um, for Arichi Lang, 
I thought he did a pretty damn good job in that fight. If you actually watch the film in that fight, he wins round one. All three judges actually had Arichi Lang winning round one. Round two is interesting. Uh, Arichi Lang is more or less winning the round, but he does get like a little flash knockdown at one point in the middle part of the round. Gets up, seems to then keep doing enough to maybe still win the round. And then seconds before the round ends, Molina catches Arichi Lang with a straight punch, knocks him down. It's a clear knockdown. And you have to, at that point, give that round to Molina because it was kind of close at that point. So Molina gets round one and two. I'm uh, sorry, gets round two. It's 1-1 going into round three. And Molina's got the hands, got the hand speed, um, good footwork. Ends up, you know, just kind of outlasting Arichi Lang. You can see Arichi Lang gets a little bit tired. Now, Lang did have a takedown um, in round one. Um, did have some grappling and some, you know, cage time against the cage with Molina but wasn't able to do much later in the fight, kind of fatigued a little bit in that area. Um, but I like the fact that he kind of got close to beating a UFC-level fighter who is 2-0 in the UFC. I thought it showed a lot. Um, I don't think Cody Durden is as good right now as Jeff Molina is. So for me, Arichi Lang showed that if they fought, you know, him and, him and Jeff Molina fought again, there's a chance that Arichi Lang could win that fight. So that was a good test for him. That was his first UFC fight. So it wasn't a terrible debut for the 28-year-old Arichi Lang. It showed a lot. Um, I thought, you know, for example, his his fighter IQ, his ability to wrestle and grapple, um, I like that a lot. Um, not the best finishing ability, but then again, when you look closely at that Molina fight, he tags Molina. His counterpunching is sharp. Um, he's not a looping puncher, um, doesn't lean too hard in. He's got a nice jab, um, got a nice one-two combination. I think he's the superior boxer here when you compare him to Cody Durden. Um, I, think, I, I think even like cardio-wise. I saw Cody Durden. Um, let's talk about him. I saw him fade a little bit in his last fight, a fight against Jimmy Flick. Now, he loses that fight. I'm sorry, not Jimmy Flick. He lost against Jimmy Flick round one via triangle choke. Uh, we'll talk about that one second. But the fight against Chris Gutierrez, he loses that fight by decision. I, I thought Chris Gutierrez, you know, did enough to win the fight. And Chris Gutierrez ends up winning round one and round two on all judges' scorecards. But they gave a 10-8 round, all three judges, to, to uh, Cody Durden for his first round performance. So... On one hand, yeah, great job in round one. He had back control, backpack, had position control, and Gutierrez didn't do much of anything. And at some point in the round, you can see Gutierrez was like, you know what? Forget it. I lost this round. No big deal. Little did he know it was a 10-8 round. So he ends up winning round two and three. It ends up being a draw. But in my opinion, kind of just pretty much a loss overall there for Cody Durden. You know, he did get beat up, you know, at the end of the fight. He did fade. Um, his grappling skills, let, you know, not to be desired. His punching skills, boxing skills, not to be, you know, desired. His head movement is not great when he's fresh. It's a little slow. Um, you could see it coming. And then as he slows down, as he fatigues, it gets even slower. That's going to be a problem here against um, Arishi Lang, who's got pretty sharp boxing, really nice counter punching. I believe wrestling-wise, I think Arichi Lang also has a has a has an advantage there. I think he's a little bit stronger, more powerful than the the, the thinner, longer uh, looking um, you know fighter when it comes to Cody Durden. Now, specifically their stats, I want to call, go over their, their striking numbers. This says a lot about how they fight. Cody Durden is landing 3.11 strikes per minute compared to 7.73 for Arichi Lang. So right there, you can see Arichi Lang is a lot busier of a striker. Arichi Lang does throw leg kicks body kicks he kind of mixes it up but he's just so busy with his hands he keeps his hands moving good good punching combinations excuse me and so he's got almost more than double the output here than um than his, than his opponent here so as for as for strikes absorb that's where it's you know it's not great necessarily for either fighter but it's probably a little worse for Richie lang for cody dirt he's absorbing just under four strikes per minute Richie lang is absorbing 12.6 strikes per minute so that's not great. That shows you both of them don't have the best stand-up defense, um, especially for Ichi Lang. He's willing to take punches, willing to trade. 
In the case these two trade, though, I think, again, Arichi Lang is the more dangerous puncher. He has the more likelihood, I think, to clip uh, his opponent here in Cody Durden. Not that Cody Durden can't take a punch. I just I think Arichi Lang punches a little harder. Um, as for takedowns, Arichi uh, Lang is averaging three takedowns per four, excuse me, per 15-minute fight or three-round fight and 3.28 here for Durden. So takedown-wise, pretty much the same. In ter terms of takedown defense, um, Arichi Lang is defending 100% of the takedowns, whereas Durden is defending half the takedowns. So... Not sure what we could take down there from their takedown defense. You know, we're going to see what happens there. I do believe, though, in the clinch, when they're actually trying to get a takedown, I believe the quicker, faster, more athletic fighter is Arichi Lang. He's got a little more, po more power there in the clinch. Um, and cardio-wise, I could see where Arichi Lang is going to be a little more fresh in round two and three. Uh, I've seen Cody Durden have a hard time, you know, staying fresh. Um, and also for Cody Durden, he hasn't fought in a little over, well, this will be about a year for him. Okay, so for him... He's coming off of a year layoff for Richie Lang. He is to be a second fight in 2021. So he's been a little bit busier. He did fight as well in 2020. So, you know, for Richie Lang, he's fighting three fights in the same period of time that Cody Durden fought one. So a little busier of a fighter. I'd like to see that. Um, and just overall, I feel like, look, I pick a money here. Uh, I'm confident that, you know, Richie Lang is going to have the stronger hands. He's going to have the better cardio, the better wrestling. And for Cody Durden, this is by far going to be the best competition for him. Cody Durden was pretty good in the regional scene, had what, like 11-1 type of record. Um, now he's in the UFC. He's fallen here to 11-3. He's got a draw and a loss. Pretty much, I think, two fights he should have lost in terms of the Christy Tennis fight. But either way, the point is I'm pointing all arrows to our guy here, Richie Lang, to win the fight. The next fight in the card is going to be a lightweight bout between the American Terrence McKinney and the French fighter Faris Ziem. McKinney, who goes by T-Rex, is 11-3 overall, 4-1 his last five fights. He's hailed specifically from Spokane, Washington, 27 years old, 5'10 in height with 74-inch reach. He's coming out of Warrior Camp MMA. As for Faris Ziem, the French fighter, he goes by the Smile Killer, 12-3 overall, 4-1 his last five fights, 24 years old, 6'1 in height with 75-inch reach. He trades out of Bulgarian top team. The money line has these guys even, so it's a pick them. Now, according to the uh, topology votes here, what do we got? We've got, oh, wow, 76% of the votes coming in here are for McKinney, and 24% are coming in for Ziem. I'm going to say that's because of the recency bias. Uh, the last fight there for McKinney, he comes out and just knocks out Favola with just a quick jab, straight punch. Um, I, I'm sorry to say it looks like Favola was maybe recovering from a concussion recently because the way he dropped, he dropped uh, like a cheap suit. Um, and Favola's a pretty decent fighter. I know he's getting to the end of his career. Uh, but it looked like Terrence just barely touched him and the guy folded. So it was an exciting win, um, his UFC debut. Uh, so the first time some people had seen him. So I think that's why the topology votes are like that. But I do agree with the money line being like a pick em. Uh ZM is no joke either. When you look at his record here, he's also 2-0 and in the UFC. I'm sorry, 2-1 and in the UFC with his lone loss being a decision loss against Don Madge. Um, prior to that, he had a very nice record in the European beatdown scene. Um, he's an overall good fighter, very good, very good at distance, has long kicking game, nice reach, you know, in terms of his hands, good boxing and on the ground, especially if you look at his last few fights like against like Jamie Malarkey against Luigi Vendramini, he's serviceable on the ground, maybe spends too much time on his back, maybe chases submissions too much as well, but he can reverse position. He's very athletic and it's interesting because he's very long in build, his stature is built, but he shows you he can wrestle on the ground. He can hold his own. Now at the same time. He's been flirting with fire. Okay, the last two wins he's had have both been by decision over Malarkey and over Luigi Vendramini. And his last fight against Vendramini specifically, if you watch that film, he wins round one and two, yes. But round three, he's like running for his life. He's getting hit. He's packing up a lot. He's basically running. And if it got a little bit more damage in the third round, it could have been even a 10-8 round and they would have draw. So 
Um, he's not finishing anyone, even going back to his time before coming into the UFC. He's not a great finisher. He's got a few submissions, doesn't seem to punch very hard or kick very hard, but he's got volume and keeps it at a distance and tends to win by points. Now, looking at the actual striking numbers between these two, it's very interesting. For McKinney, he's landing 1.73 strikes per minute, and for Ziam, he's landing 2.13, so more or less similar. For strikes absorbed for McKinney, it's 0.58, and for Ziam, it's 1.67. So again, not, not, so, not so much of a difference there. Now, for takedowns, here's where we're going to get into talking more about Terrence McKinney. Terrence McKinney is a former high school wrestler, former college wrestler. He's landing 4.33 takedowns per 15 minutes compared to 0.33 for Ziam. And that lends to the way Ziam fights. Ziam doesn't mind being on the ground, but he's willing to give up and you know be on and be in guard and be on his back. And for McKinney, he's going to welcome that. Okay, so I know Ziam has some decent submissions in his you know past regional scene whatnot. But you know it's a dangerous game to welcome to take takedowns and be on your back. He eventually catches up to you point wise. He's been winning these last few fights again via points. Um, so again, that that's reflecting their numbers now for takedown defense. We've got 0% here for, for McKinney, which I'm not sure how that could be, um, and 68% here for, for ZM. So I'm not sure how accurate those numbers are. But again, looking at the background for Terrence McKinney, if you don't know, um, he was an accomplished college wrestler. But then, you know, throughout college, he ends up making a bad decision one night, um, takes some drugs that he didn't realize what he was taking, um, ends up overdosing. Police end up on the scene. A lot of it's recorded. It becomes part of a story, a news story. He does overdose, actually legally dead. Um, they narc him, bring him back. Um, Narcan, they bring the guy back. I think he dies two times that night. He ends up making a full recovery. Now he's like an advocate, works with the local police. He's become an inspiration. Um, it wasn't as if he was a drug addict, but he made a bad decision one night, mixed some things he shouldn't have mixed, got some drugs that he wasn't you know, sure what he was taking. He was celebrating with some friends. Um, and one bad decision almost cost him his life. And actually, well, it did. Um, anyway, his story is amazing. Um, I'd like to think... Uh, he's got a certain edge to him. And when I've watched Farazim fight, this is not like something I can measure in analytics here. I'm just talking about what I've seen with my eyes. I think Farazim's a good fighter. I think he's very technical. I think he's got good range skills. I think he's overall very good. There's no reason why he would be 2-1 and one in the UFC if he wasn't a decent fighter. And he's young, 24 years old. But when it comes to like the dog in you, um, the dog in a fighter, that edge, I think Terrence McKinney has that edge. I think here's a guy who's just a little more thirsty, who's willing to kind of go out on his sword, who's willing to try to finish fights, who's going to go ahead and push pace and pressure. When you look at the Don Madge fight with Varazim, he lost that fight by decision. And part of the reason is because Don Madge pushed pace and pressure. Zim is going to back up. Okay, he's going to back up. He's going to circle, circle, circle back up. Terrence McKinney is going to push the pressure and pace. He has good cardio. He's a former he's former high school and college wrestler. He knows what it's like to do the road work. He knows what it's like to have good cardio. Now, will he look to finish the fight early? Of course he will. Um, can he find ZM's chin? Yeah, I think he could. And ZM has showed me in, in his short period that I've seen him, I get the impression, I'm not trying to jinx the guy, but that he would just ball up. He's not going to fall out on his sword. If he gets too much pressure and pays from Terrence McKinney, I could see him balling up. McKinney just landing too many shots, and the fight ends that way. Um, if it goes three rounds, I think here's the chance for, for Terrence to win two of the three rounds where he's going to either get pace and pressure, just pushing him into pens, the fence, excuse me, or takedown points, position points in the ground. Uh, Striking-wise, ZM will have a few moments, but Terrence McKinney, again, there's just a little bit more of a dog in him. If it goes three rounds, which I don't think it's going to go three rounds, I think he gets a decision win here. I like McKinney a lot. Early in the week, you get this number here at, at even money. So at minus 105, minus 115, whatever, even if it goes to like minus 125, minus 150, it's going to be fair money. 
Um, I encourage you to watch the film links. The film links are in the description. Watch some of their prior fights. I think you'll agree. There's a certain edge here to Terrence McKinney. He is 2-0 in the LFA as well before he came into the UFC. Um, so the guy's got a lot going for him. I think he's got, you know, the recent highlight win where he, you know, beat um, Favola. I'm sure he's feeling that, you know, same motivation to come in here and do something against Ferris ZM. Uh, long and short of it, I like Terrence McKinney. I think he's got a lot of tools right now. I think he's got more experience. He's fought some better fighters. Oh, one more thing about McKinney. When you look back at his record, he does have a few losses, right? Because he's overall, what, 11-3. and three. Well, two of his three losses, which were fights before he came into UFC, were against Derek Minor and against Sean Woodson. If they don't ring a bell, those are both current UFC fighters. Um, so other than his loss to Tyron Henderson back in 2018, which was a doctor stoppage from a leg injury, mind you, a leg injury, he's only been beaten by two guys that are in the UFC. And now that he's in the UFC, he's one to know. So look, the guy seems to have the ingredients here to be a legit prospect. I think for Farah Ziem, this is by far his top competition. And I think for Terrence McKinney, I'm not sure this is his best competition. He's fought in guys prior to this that are in the UFC. Guys like, for example, Sean Woodson, who knocked him out in round two from a flying knee. So, look, he's been in there with some guys that are legit. I don't think this is going to be a big test for Terrence McKinney. I think he's got his eyes set on some bigger and badder things than this. With that said, he's got to stay focused on the guy in front of him. So he has done some things in the past that were maybe questionable decisions. For example, after the fight against Matt Favola, he jumps up on the cage, does a backflip. Twists his knee, like, and I thought at the time, did he just tear his ACL? Like, he was limping, he was a little bit hurt. So, look, he's got to keep his mind focused. He is a very young fighter. He's been through a lot. Of course, he wants to prove himself. But in this matchup right here, I think it's going to be just too much wrestling, too much athleticism, and just too much dog in Terrence McKinney for, 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 for Ferris DM here to come out victorious. So, I like McKinney to win the fight, and I like it to be inside the distance. Okay, the prelim card opens up with a strawweight bout between Luma Lukbume from Thailand and Lupita Godinez from Mexico. Now, Godinez is of Mexican descent, but she actually resides in British Columbia, Canada, and she trains out of Titan MMA. She's 6-2 overall, 3-2 in her last five fights, 5'2 five in height with a 61-inch reach. As for Lukbume, she's 6-2 overall, 4-1 in her last five fights, only 25 years old, but she'll be 26 years old here in about two months. She's 5'1 in height with a 62-inch reach. She's training out of Tiger Muay Thai, which is an infamous gym down there in Thailand. Now, as for the public votes here on Tapology, it looks like Lukbume is getting 58% of the votes compared to 42% coming in for Godinez. Now, if you've watched some fights recently, you may recognize the name Godinez. She has fought quite a bit. Uh, she fought back on the 9th of October, and then she turned around seven days later, fought on the 16th of October, and then here she is fighting on the 13th of November. So she has quite literally fought three fights um, in the period of about a month. Now, let's go back on her tapology here and look at uh, Godinez first because I think this is what really the, the, the focal point of why I have to side with Lukbume. I like Lukbume as a fighter. I think that she has holes in her game, but Lupita Godinez has been so inconsistent of late and even the way the judges are sort of looking at her and judging her, there's just a lot of things there that would make you very cautious about wanting to put any money behind her. This is the opening card in the prelims. You're going to imagine... It'll be the least, you know, bet heavy, you know, it'll be the least bet, you know, fight. But if you're going to bet it, let's just get some things here that I think you want to want to know. Now, she fights Jessica Penning. That's her UFC debut back in April of this past year. OK, and that was a really awkward fight, because if you if you were betting on Lupita Godinez, who was a minus 285, almost a minus three to one favorite coming into that fight, you're thinking it kind of looked like she won meaning that she had control at times. She was able to literally toss Jessica Penne a few times, actually onto the ground, onto her back, but then she would not engage and she would not get in top position. And this brings up one of my biggest questions I have about Lupita Godinez. She's built like a wrestler, right? She's built stocky, okay? She doesn't have very long reach and doesn't have great striking. She has some hard striking and some good good body kicks. Um, and she's a you know very well-built girl, built girl. 
But the problem is she doesn't wrestle and she doesn't wrestle well. She doesn't grapple well. She's built that way, but she's kind of like Goldie. Like Goldie's the same thing, built stocky like a fire hydrant, but doesn't wrestle well. Um, imagine like how good Khabib Nurmagomedov's career would be if he couldn't wrestle well and was just trying to box with the frame that he has. So this is a big area of concern for me with Lupita. She could work on her boxing, keep getting better, and get better at her stand-up defense and whatnot. But it's just like her body physically is meant to be more of a grappler and wrestler, and she doesn't do that very well. So what ends up happening in the Jessica Penny fight, she loses by split decision, and it's because Jessica's backpacking her, Jessica's just holding on to her at times on the ground, and you see Lupita's unable to do much with it. And that brings me also to the recent fight with Luana Carolina. She lost to Carolina a few weeks back on the 16th of October, a loss by decision, a fight where, again, if you were betting on Godinez, who was about a minus 200 favorite going into that fight, you'd think maybe she kind of won. I watched the replay. I could see an argument for why she might have won, but the judges had her losing. All three judges, I think, had her winning round one, but then all three of them had her losing round two and three. So that's another big concern. Like, for some reason, the judges are not looking at her and seeing what she's doing, I thought she landed the, the harder blows in that fight. If you know anything about Luana Carolina, she's a very long fighter, tall fighter for that division. Lupita's shorter. So it was like David versus Goliath. But when you're thinking about in the clinch, you got to imagine Lupita's going to have the advantage, right? She'll be stronger. She has better leverage. She looks more like the wrestler. It wasn't the case. You were watching her struggle to control position against a very long fighter who has been rumored to be not the strongest in the upper body. There's rumors of her not being able to do like 10 push-ups and things like that. She's kind of got like Kevin Durant syndrome, right? She's built like Kevin Durant. But with all that said, um, you know, Kevin Durant knows how to play to his strong suits and Luana Carolina knows how to play to hers. She was able to do a, enough on the striking and then somehow defend herself in the grappling situations where she didn't get submitted and she wins the fight. That's the bottom line. So Carolina wins the fight. You could argue maybe Godinez maybe should have gotten a round or two more, but she didn't. Um... And, you know, even when the fight was over, Lupita walks out, you know, you see her face. It's like this acceptance of like, yeah, I'm losing these decisions. I, I somehow just don't fall on the right side of these decisions. Now, her prior fight against Juarez, she wins that fight via armbar. That was back in the ninth of last month in October. It was a dominant situation for her. She looked dominant. And it was at that moment, I think everyone was like, okay, that's the Lupita we should be able to see. You know, she's physically looks like she should have the advantage in the clinch. You know, she should be able to get more submissions. But then this brings me back to let's go back even further. Her last fight in LFA before she comes to the UFC was against Demopoulos, Vanessa Demopoulos. She wins that fight by majority decision, okay? Vanessa Demopoulos is like a, a, a six and four fighter, okay? Prior to that, Lindsey Garbrandt, she wins that fight by decision. Prior to that, Felicia Magellan. A lot of these fights, you'll find the links in the description to watch them yourself if you'd like. But these are decision wins. These are decision wins against fighters that were very low level, 500 level fighters. Now, here she comes to the UFC, her first fight, Goes to decision against Jessica Penne. Say what you want about her, but she did the best she could to make it ugly enough that a split decision gets on the side of Jessica Penne. So not a great debut for Godinez. Juarez comes around. You're like, okay, here we go. We got something going on. And then she gets beat like by Luana Carolina. Now she's having a really quick turnaround. I'm not sure what's up with this. It looks like the UFC is like just going to run her ragged. Because I think at first they were like, here we have a little fire hydrant. Tough fighter. Mexican descent. Maybe we can, you know, do some... Now, I'm looking at these two losses against Pena and Carolina, and I'm like, I don't know that she's maybe going to be as much of a solid prospect as I thought before. So here's the UFC grinding her out. They're throwing in here with Luma Lukbunme. Now, specifically, let's look at the, like, tail of the tape in terms of the side-by-side -side comparison. I looked at the stats here on their striking numbers, for example. So Luke 
Luma Luma's landing 5.27 strikes per minute compared to only 2.16 to, to Lupi. So yeah, that makes sense. She's landing almost two and a half times the amount of strikes. That's Luma. Luma. And if you look at Luma the way she fights, she's aggressively she's aggressive with her front kicks. She's quick. She's snappy. She's in and out. Um, she'd rather keep the fight that way. She doesn't want to grapple too much or wrestle too much. And when she does get wrestled, she does a good job of getting up. But again, those numbers don't lie. She's landing 5.27 strikes per minute compared to only 2.16 for Godinians. Now, in terms of the strikes absorbed, Loma's absorbing 3.13 to compared to 2.54. So she's absorbing a little bit more, but again, that's comparable. So you have a person like Godinez who is literally absorbing more shots at 2.54 compared to 2.16 output than she's you know putting out. So that's never a good thing to have. In terms of takedowns, that's where, again, Godinez, now this is the part of her game you want to see her evolve more. This is where she could win this type of fight. So he's landing just over, just over or just under four and a half takedowns per 15-minute fight. And then for um, Loma, she's landing just a takedown and a half per 15-minute fight. So there's an advantage there for, for Godinez. Now, their takedown defense, very similar. Loma's uh, defending at 76% rate compared to 85% for Godinez. Now, if you watch Loma fight... Um, Watch some of her recent fights. One of the things you notice about her, again, very quick, much going to be much quicker on the feet, going to have a, a speed advantage when it comes to the striking, going to land some nice front kicks here against Godinez. Godinez does not have the greatest head movement. Boxing is just not her forte yet. Striking, she's she's not a great striker. She does hit hard. Um, she gets Her face gets red quickly. It's another thing I don't love now about watching, having watched Lupita Godinez in her free fights. She tends to get red. She tends to, you know, little cuts, little bruises. It doesn't look great. Uh, Loma, on the other hand, you know, she's got a, more of a tan complexion, you know, sort of a Thai, you know, Thai look. Uh, she is from Thailand. She's been fighting since she was like seven years old. So this little, this record of hers, when you see her, you know, MMA record, you're like, oh, you know, they're both inexperienced. You know, she's six and two. She's fought like literally like a hundred, you know, Thai fights. Um, So she's, she's very experienced for a 25 year old um, young fighter, Um, a lot more so than I would say for compared to Cadenas. And I think you'll see that she's going to be snappy. Um, She'll get a takedown from time to time. She knows how to win the rounds. Um, her striking and boxing is going to just be so much at a higher level here than Godinez. And I think that's how she wins the fight. It's not going to be like a knockout. Um, Godinez has a chin. She's durable. They both have good cardio. But, you know, fighter IQ, striking skills, the tie, you know, tie technique, the knees, the kicks, there's going to be a big advantage there for Loma. Um, and when you look at her recent fights here, Loma, you know, she's fought decently. She went ahead and won her last fight against uh, Sam Hughes. Where, again, Sam Hughes, eh, okay fighter. But you can see where... It's like a, a whole different level of striking. Um, now, Sam Hughes does grapple her a few times, you know, does pull her to the ground, uh, does get her against the cage. Because Loma, you'll see there's like, a, she's just more of a finesse fighter, you know, more skill in terms of striking. She's not looking to grapple you up and make it ugly. But when you look at those last two wins, Jin Yu Fry and Sam Hughes, those are more, more muscly bound fighters that want to get their hands around Loma, want to squeeze her up. And she won both those bouts. So, you know, she came to the UFC back in 2019, fought her first fight against Albu. Won that fight, then lose a decision against Angela Hill. You know, not so bad. Angela Hill, whenever she shows, depends on who shows up, she could be a good fighter. But the bottom line is she's 3-1 and one in the UFC. Um, that compared to what Lupita's doing. I mean, there's a lot of, again, reasons why you're going to want to look at Loma as a, as a potential favorite to win this fight. Now, current to the current money line, where are we at here? It's minus 155 for Godinez. So, you know, it'll probably change. It'll probably flip or go to even. But at plus 130 currently, which you can get that on DraftKings here early on, early in the week, um, you might want to slam that. I think Loma is going to pick her apart and, you know, some damage in the face, some nice kicks. 
Lopita is coming in here having fought three fights in the last month. Um, how long of a camp has she had between fights? Obviously, she doesn't have much of a camp. Um, she's fighting completely different fighters. Um, she did fight a long uh, fighter in, in Carolina recently, but that's this is a different fighter. Loma is not long and tall, but she's like she's like a ninja. <laughs> like she comes in, hits you. She's out. She's in. She's quick with her feet. Um, gonna be much faster than Lupita. I'm thinking Lupita right now. She's biting off more than she could chew. It's nice she's trying to fight a lot, but um, this is a little bit desperate on her part. It's not great, I don't think, from a coaching standpoint or the management standpoint. Um, it almost seems like a desperation of like, we just lost against Carolina. Let's get back in the win column. Let's get back in there. Um, this could turn ugly here in a second, and she's going to have three losses in her last four fights if this doesn't go well for her. So um, in terms of straight up, you know, looking at the experience level, I give an advantage to Loma. Again, talked about her amateur experience, her tie experience. For fighter IQ, I, you know, I do not like the fact that Lupita in the clinch with fighters she should be winning those those battles with against older fighters, even like Jessica Penne, she's not winning those battles. You know, um, does she look like Tarzan but fight like Jane? Like she's got the physique. It seems like she's strong, but it doesn't seem to work out like that when she's actually fighting. Um, she's had chances to get on top of fighters like we talked about in the, in the Penne fight. Doesn't do it. She's losing decisions in the scorecards. She's losing against fighters she's, she's favored against. Um, her last few fights, um, we talked about that in terms of favorites. Lupita Gugnina was a 2-1 to one favorite against Luana Carolina. Lost that fight. She was a favorite over, over Juarez, about 3-1. to one. She won that fight. Her fight against Jessica Penny, she was a 3-1 to one favorite. Minus 285, she lost that fight. So she's been favored in all three of her last fights, and she's lost two of those three fights. She's coming in here now against what I think is probably, you know, no, no probably, is the best striker she has faced in her life, you know, she's been with three UFC fighters, Juarez, Carolina, and Pene. All okay, but not great strikers. Loma is like a world-class tie fighter. This is going to be way too much for her. And at plus money, you're going to want to slam Loma. I will not only take Loma straight up. I'll definitely be parlaying her. Looking at the cardio situation, both fighters, I think they're even with their cardio. Uh, Boxing-wise, huge advantage for Loma. Uh, Grappling-wise, I do give an advantage to Loma. And here's why. Because Godinez, even though she gets a takedown sometimes... She can't keep her t position. She gets out grappled. She gets out maneuvered by fighters that I think are less skilled than Loma. I can see Loma getting taken down and immediately getting back up, um, transitioning. Um, I don't think Loma will look for takedowns per se, but when she does get taken down, she'll get back up. So there's a grappling advantage, I think, there for Loma as well, just because of her skill level. So across the board, you know, the only thing that I think that the Godinez could do to win this fight, two ways. One, pull off a submission. Finally use her body. Get an arm bar, pull a submission. Or she out-wrestles Loma and actually keeps her to the ground. But she's done nothing in her recent fights to show me that's going to happen. This breakdown went way too far for the first fight, and I apologize. But if you're going to you're going to wager this fight, you know at least you have some more information. Um, just something else to consider here. The over 2.5 currently is at minus 325. I do believe this fight goes to distance. So if you're looking at the over 1.5, over 2.5, if it's available and it's not too crazy, or a fight starts around 3, something like that, I think it goes to full distance. So if you're looking at who you want to win the fight or who you think is going to win the fight, decision prop would be the way to go. Those numbers are not out yet, but I would be on Loma to win by decision. And even just plus money, plus 130 straight up, I think she wins. But let's be honest, no one's knocking each other out. Uh, these are very lightweight uh, you know, fighters here in the female division. So uh, with that said, I like Loma to win the fight. Good luck with this one, guys. Next up, we've got a lightweight bout between the Mexican fighter, Hafa Garcia, and the Israeli fighter, Natan Levy. Levy is 6-0. He's currently based out of Las Vegas, Nevada, where he trains out of Syndicate MMA. He's 5'9 in height with a 72-inch reach, and he's 30 years old. As for Garcia, he's 12-2 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights, 27 years old, 5'7 in height with a 68-inch reach, and he's training out of Team Punisher. So, height-wise, he's got a 2-inch height advantage for Levy um, and a 4-inch uh, reach advantage for Levy. 
But based upon the way Levy fights, I'm not sure that that's going to be much of a factor. As we break down these fighters and their tendencies, you're going to see that he's much more of a wrestler and a grappler. Um, now, looking at Tapology's public vote, Levy's a strong favorite. He's getting 76% of the votes compared to only 24% coming for Garcia. A little surprising considering that the money line right now is at minus 105 apiece. It's, it's just a straight-up pick em. Um, I do like Levy to win the fight. Uh, let's talk here, though, about Rafa Garcia first. So he starts his career off 12-0, and 0, you know, looking good, undefeated, comes into the UFC, and, of course, what happens? He loses his first two UFC fights. Now, it's not like he got his ass kicked or he lost, you know, blatantly, but they were decision losses against decent fighters, Nasrat Hakpras and Chris Grutzmacher. Now, I don't want to I don't want to sound disrespectful towards Grutzmacher. I, I think the guy's a hell of a tough guy. But in that fight, you know, there's a lot of red flags for me with Hafa Garcia. Number one, he does hit some kind of a cardio wall. So like in round one, he is laying the hammer on Chris Grutzmacher. He's landing some nice punches. And at that point, I think he gets to a point in that first round where he's like, this guy's not going down. My hands are getting sore. Um, I'm getting fatigued. And Chris survives it. And what ends up happening is Grutzmacher just makes the fight ugly enough in round two and three, starts to wear on Hoffa, um, and it's just not a good look. Um, I have concerns there as a 27-year-old Mexican fighter. You know, you're thinking Mexican fighters, they have, you know, a lot of willpower, good chin. He does have those things. But, you know, the, the cardio is not usually a thing with Mexican fighters. Usually they have good cardio, and he's only 27. So I'm not sure if that's just a, a unique thing to this that, that last fight. The way he's been training, um, maybe he's mixing it up. Maybe he's getting better with cardio. But seems to me as if late second round, late third round, he's always going to be the fighter that's going to be a little more tired. And when you flip that over to a guy like Levy, that could be, in essence, a huge problem. That could be a really big problem. Now, looking at the fight versus Nasrat Hakprost and Grutzmacher, the one thing, again, you notice about Rafa Garcia, the dude can take a punch, okay? I do want to make sure I emphasize that. That part of him is very Mexican. He could trade with anyone. Um but here's another thing with him. His punching power diminishes a lot after that first two, three minutes of round one. And so, you know, yes, he's got some finishing power. He hasn't shown it recently because if you're looking back at his last four fights, they've all got a decision. The last time he got a finish was actually be a rear naked choke. And that was 2019. Uh, last time he got a TKO finish was 2018. And that was in combate. So um, doesn't seem like the power that he may have had to finish or finishing ability has not translated, obviously, to the UFC level. This is an important fight for him, right? He would end up going 0-3 here if he doesn't win this fight in his first three fights in the UFC. Um, he is young enough. I mean, he could even get cut by the, the UFC, make his way back, and come back. Um, things I do like about um, Hoffa Garcia is this is going to be his 14th, 15th fight, right? So there is some experience, and that's about double the experience here of Natan Levy. Levy has not fought in over a year. Uh, that's a little bit of a concern. You got a guy like Hoffa Garcia. This will be his third fight in 2021. So maybe third time's a charm. He finally gets the fight right. Now, I will also mention this. I don't like guys who fall on the wrong side of decisions often. So when you look at the fight against Chris Grutzmacher, there could be some who would say, oh, you know, <clears throat> he won round one. Maybe he won part of round two. Maybe it was an argument. That it could have been a split decision. It wasn't. It was unanimous decision for Chris Grutzmacher. So the ref, referees or the, or I'm sorry, the, the, the uh, judges are not seeing him in, as an effective fighter. They're not giving him, you know, the benefit of the doubt. Against Nasrat Hakprost, he got chewed up. Um, he got outboxed. Let's talk here about Natan Levy. Levy is a very solid wrestler, okay? So the first thing you notice about him on film, 30 seconds, 45 seconds into the fight, he's going for a takedown. He's looking to get a double leg. He's going to drag his opponent to the ground. He's decent on top. There are times in the fight where I, I, in the fights I've watched, actually, where I wish he would do more from the top position. Then again, he, he was fighting some guys that were decent from the bottom, able to kind of hold him up and, you know, tie him up. So I'd like to see a busier Natan Levy when he does get top position. He is going to take down Hoffa Garcia. There's no question about that. 
It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. So it'll be early and often. There'll be attempts. Natan Levy has a hell of a gas tank, so it's not as if he's going to wrestle you for the first two minutes of the first round and then say, okay, I'm too tired. He's going to wrestle you all the way through the end of the fight. This wearing pace and pressure looks to be in wonderful shape. Now, I did mention earlier he hasn't fought in over a year, specifically October of 2020, when that was a Dana White contenders fight where he gets the win there. But let me go back on that. He gets the win by, yeah, arm triangle in round three against uh, Shaheen Santana. Um, it was a decent win. Santana was also undefeated at the time. He came to that fight 6-0. and And uh, our, our guy here, Levy, came into that fight 5-0. and So he gets a triangle choke. It is on Dana White's contender series. Prior to that, he was in LFA. Um, so all of his pro fights where he got decision wins, guillotine choke, arm bar. Um, and, yeah, three decision wins in LFA. That was the one thing also that kind of popped out to me where I'd like to see a little bit higher finish rate when you're fighting in LFA if you're looking to come in here with some steam and be a you know good UFC prospect. All that said, you're talking about a guy, Levy, who is 30 years old. He's approaching his prime years. So he got a little bit of a late start here, needs to get going. I think this fight is set up perfectly for him. I think for Garcia, he's on the ropes here. Levy's going to push the pace and pressure, probably going to win two boring rounds in top position, position control. Can he finish a guy like Garcia? I don't think Garcia has the best jiu-jitsu uh, def defense. I don't think he's got the best ground game. So maybe he puts himself in a situation where he is tired and Levy can finish him. But I think the prop bet that makes the most sense is going to be Levy by decision. Now, at minus 105, it's even money. I like Levy. In terms of the prelim card, he's probably going to be my second or third most confident pick to win. And at even money, I'm obviously going to put at least a full unit on this. Um, I might even do more. might even put him to a few uh, parlays. I just think that at this point right now, the undefeated Israeli fighter, there is a little side story. Let me give you my little UFC side story, the motivation for why we want him to win too, if you're a UFC executive. There's like zero Israeli UFC fighters, like is zero of them. Now, Israel is a small country, but there's a lot of Jewish people around the world, and Jews um, are all into multimedia, uh, own some of the uh, most prominent media companies, um, sit on top-level boards. They're a very intelligent base, and there's a lot of Jewish people around the world, and I'm sure there's a lot of Jewish fans, right? So what more could the UFC want than a few more Asian fighters, right? Catered to the Far East uh, fan base, which is also a big fan base in the United States. And also the same goes for, for, for Jewish fans, right? What better than a guy like Natan Levy? So if, if this fight goes to a greasy decision, I've got to imagine, like, however they've done it, the wink, wink, you know, wink, wink, you know, we're giving this guy the decision win if he gets a, a close fight. So I don't think it will be that close. I think Levy goes ahead and wrestles him. I think he's able to get the grappling advantage. He's going to do it early and often. Uh, I do want to mention prior fights with Levy. I did watch a fight on him, and one thing that popped out to me is that he also could take a few punches. Okay, so let's say he gets a situation where he gets cracked once or twice by Garcia. I do believe he's got a little bit of a chin. I think he can take those shots, recover. If you're a grappler and a wrestler, you also have that feather in your cap where if you get hurt, you get stunned, you can wrestle, you can grapple. Anyway, side-by-side uh, -side comparisons. Experience-wise, I give an edge to Garcia, obviously. IQ, fighter IQ. I give an edge to Natan Levy, even though he's been in the ring or octagon for less fights, his fighting style is intelligent, a lot like a guy like Aaron Pico. We saw what Aaron Pico did the other day in the Bellator 271. He's a wrestler, a grappler, high motor, awesome, you know, full battery. So for Levy, that's a lot of the same comparisons. Cardio, I give an edge to Levy, as we talked about. Finishing ability, I'm giving both guys a very low rating. Uh, I don't know that Levy's going to be like a submission guy, you know, where he's going to be able to start submitting guys at UFC level. We'll see here. As for Garcia... If he doesn't finish someone early in the fight, you know, his power diminishes a lot. Haven't seen a high finish rate from him, what, four fights in a row with no finishes. Boxing-wise, 
I should be able to give an edge to Garcia because, you know, Mexican fighter, he's got solid hands, but he gets loopy and wild. His technique goes out the window pretty quickly. And for Levy, he has a limited boxing style. You know, a matter of fact, going to their UFC stats, when you look at them side by side, Hoffa Garcia is landing 4.13 strikes per minute compared to 1.65 for Levy. That just tells you their fighting style. Levy's more of a grappler, a holder, a points position type of guy, uh, whereas Hoffa Garcia, 4.13 strikes per minute, he's striking more. Now, in terms of strikes absorbed, it is notable here that for Hoffa Garcia, he's being he's absorbing 6.63 strikes per minute. That's not a good ratio there. As for Levy, it's 0.82. Uh, for takedowns, Garcia's landing 2.5 takedowns per three-round fight, and Levy's landing 2.75. They both have 100% takedown defense. That's definitely going to go down here for Garcia. He's going to get taken down. There's just no question about it. I'd say, look, first minute of the fight, Maybe Garcia's defending that takedown, and about that minute, minute and a half mark, he's like, all right, damn it, I'll go on my back. I'm going to try to you know, do what I can on the ground. He's going to just get worn out from the pressure and pace from Levy. So anyway, <sighs> I talked enough about Levy. I like Levy. If you're looking to take a stab here on a prospect, it's even money. Um, I think by the time the fight kicks off later in the week, it might excuse me, it might be a slight favorite here towards Levy where it's like minus, minus 150. Let me get, get to around to that point because I do think Levy here, when you start looking at film on him, when you start hearing some other cappers, he just, to me, has the slight edge here, and Garcia has shown some issues that I don't know if he's going to solve them so quickly. It's his third fight again in 2021. Has he wrapped up the cardio? Um, has he all of a sudden become a very good wrestler and been able to defend takedowns? Not sure. So we'll see the fight. We'll see what happens. Good luck on this one, guys. Okay, next up, we've got a featherweight bout between two American fighters, Tucker Lutz and Pat Sabatini. Sabatini is 15-3 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. He hails from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 31 years old. Five foot eight in high with a 70-inch reach. He's out of Grenzo Gracie, Philadelphia. He also trains out of MPR Endurance. As for Tucker Lutz, who goes by Top Gun, he's 12-1 and overall as a pro, but I do need to mention he started his pro debut off with a loss and then actually went on a 12-fight winning streak, so he's been on a hot streak now for a while. He hails from Maryland, 27 years old, five foot eight in high with a 72-inch reach. He's coming out of Shattuck MMA Academy. He's also out of Ground Control Academy. So... In terms of the public vote here, it looks like uh, Sabatini is the favorite, getting 72% of the votes compared to 28% coming in here for Lutz. I do like Sabatini to win, but I want to talk about this fight and break it down because I think there's also a path to victory for Tucker Lutz. And that brings me to like their fight stats. Okay, Looking at, for example, the striking numbers. So for striking numbers, Pat Sabatini is averaging 1.6 strikes per minute, and he's absorbing 1.72. Not great. Now, that's also not part of his fighting style. He's a submission elite level submission artist um he's able to get he's he could put guys in some dangerous positions pretty quickly we'll talk more about that but now on the other side of those striking numbers for lutz he's landing 5.09 strikes per minute and he's absorbing 3.67 so clearly a lot more output and in a fight here where you could see it going to decision that's the path to victory i see most likely for tucker lutz he's able to win two of these three rounds because he's landing not just more volume he's got a heck of a body kick he could do damage on head kicks and also lower leg kicks here. Sabatini is an elusive fighter. He's got good footwork. They both stand in an orthodox position. But um, I think over the course of two rounds, it's close. It's 1-1 going to the third. I can see where Tucker Lutz and his striking output, again, a lot more at four at five strikes per, per minute compared to 1.6 to, um, to Sabatini. Now, as for their takedown offense, it's interesting. You know, Sabatini is a former high school standout wrestler, Division I college wrestler, um, Brazilian jiu-jitsu Guru, I mean, the guy's amazing, but he's only landing 0.89 takedowns per 15 minutes in his two UFC fights, okay? His takedown defense, 0%, okay? So also, he's not defending takedowns very well, but it's when you start looking deeper into that, 
Some of that lends to the way he fights, okay? He doesn't mind being on his back. He doesn't mind bringing the fight to the ground. Doesn't mind if he has to give up position at first just to bring his his opponent with him down there. So he's dangerous in any position that he can pull off a submission, whether it's an arm bar, neck crank, rear naked choke, um, whatever you're looking at, he is dangerous in those spots. So his numbers are a little defe deceiving. On the other side, you've got Lutz here averaging 2.33 takedowns per 15 minutes. Now, if he's watching film on Sabatini, if he's studying Sabatini, He's probably thinking, let me keep that risk at bay. Let me use my striking output. Let me land my kicks. Let me keep the fight in the feet. Because if he wants to take the fight to the ground, it seems like he should be able to. And Pat Sabatini won't defend him. But then that puts him again in Sabatini's wheelhouse. Now for takedown defense, again, good numbers here for Lutz. He's getting 80, he's got 84% takedown defense so far. And again, with 2.33 takedowns per 15 minutes. So those are pretty much the numbers and the particulars. Let's dive a little bit deeper here into whether they fight and what they look like. For Tucker Lutz, here's a guy who, great athletic background, high school wrestler, standout football player. At 17 years old, he goes pro. As I'm sorry, he starts fighting as an amateur. Goes like a six, I think it was six and zero as an amateur. Did very well. Begins his pro career, has a loss, obviously. Then goes on to have two contender series wins, a 11 fight winning streak. Last fight, his UFC debut, gets the victory there in his debut, um, and that was over yes, Kevin Aguilar. A decent fight, um, but here's where I'm a little underwhelmed, or here's my issue with Tucker Lutz, possibly. His last three fights have all been by decision. Now, when he was back in Shogun, back in um, lower-level promotions, he was getting a few finishes and a few knockouts. Once he stepped up here to, you know, Contender Series, decision wins. Got to the first UFC fight, got a decision win. Um, just saying, it looks like the power hasn't transferred from the lower-level promotions to this, which that's a factor, you know. So his victory path is, again, it's going to be most likely through striking. He hasn't shown to be an amazing submission artist. As a matter of fact, when you look back at his fight history, he had a submission back in 2017 by a guillotine choke. Um, and prior to that, one more Darce choke in 2016. So hasn't shown the ability to be great with submissions. And again, if he's studying film on Sabatini, he's probably going to stay away from that area to keep him safe. He wants to stay on the feet, okay? Now, looking closely at Pat Sabatini, here's a guy with, again, the resume, not just the background in high school and college wrestling and not just not just being a Division One wrestler. He is, he's a guy who's coming out of Cage Fury where he was a Cage Fury champ, okay? Um, legendary story about him was he fought Jamie Gonzalez or James Gonzalez back in 2020. And during a submission attempt by Gonzalez, he had his arm broken and continued to try to fight. And they had to call the fight because of the injury to the arm. But it shows you, Pat Sabatini is a no-nonsense type of guy. Um, high threshold for pain. He's on a four-fight winning streak. He gave up the CF, you know, gave up the Cage Fury Championship to go and take the Tristan Conley fight back in 2021, early this year in April. He wins that fight by decision in his UFC debut. Then follows it up with an amazing submission over Jamal Emers. If you haven't seen that film... The link's in the description. What ends up happening in that fight, and I'm just going to keep it honest here, I like Sabatini. You know, he trains at a local gym. I'm a little biased towards him. Um, just great guy all around. He also coaches. He coaches kids like five years old all the way up to, to teenagers that are in high school wrestling. He's just a great influence, great mentor. Anyway, I can go on, on about Sabatini. And shout out to NPR Endurance, which is an amazing gym. I did an interview over there with uh, his coach. Um, anyway, that's a different video. Let me get back to the point. So he, he fought Jamal Emers in August of this year. Um, during that fight, it looks as if Sabatini's in a little bit of trouble. Um, he actually looks like maybe either he's got slightly stunned, but at the very least, he gives up some terrible position on the ground. He ends up with his back uh, being taken. It looks like he might even be giving up a neck choke at some point. Um, it seems like he's in trouble, but the one thing he's not doing, he's not panicking. It seems as if he's also rolling with the movements. He begins to chain wrestle, gets out of some awkward positions, ends up grabbing a heel hook, and then Jamal Emers makes the fatal mistake of trying to do heel hooks with... 
a heel hook. Like, I mean, just with a guy who's elite in submission. And so it looks as if Jamal Emmers has gone from winning every bit of the first round, being in some positive positions, to now being in a stalemate position where he's got a leg, Sabatini's got a leg, and they're going back and forth. And just out of nowhere, Sabatini just gets the right angle, right leverage. It sort of creates leverage at the knee, unfortunately. And so you see a little bit of a twist of Jamal Emmers' knee. I hope he's okay. I don't know the extent of it. Um, I'll tell you what, just another example of the class and, and, and the spirit of the right, you know, the, the right spirit of the sport. Sabatini immediately was, was concerned for Jamal Emmers. He mentioned it in the post-fight interview, um, having been around the guy and seen him in the gym, working with athletes in the gym, um, just the kind of character he is, is a very high character guy. He's a guy who's easy to root for. So you can see he was compare, compare, I mean, concerned there for Jamal Emmers. Um, but again, it just gives you a little, you know, glimpse into the fact that if you, if you roll around on the ground with Sabatini, it's just a matter of time. It's a matter of time. So you have to imagine in this fight, Tucker Lutz is going to be looking to keep this fight exclusively on the feet. And that's his path. And that's what will be his path to victory. For Sabatini, again, former college wrestler, he knows how to get takedowns. He may be patient in the early part of round one, maybe even all of round one, just a patient feeling out process. At some point, he'll push pace. He'll look for a takedown. And that's what we're going to see. How good is a takedown defense for Tucker Lutz? How effective will Sabatini be? Um, will Sabatini look to maybe give up position to get on his back just to bring Tucker Lutz down with him? Absolutely. So even if Sabatini doesn't get like a traditional takedown, he may just look to bring the fight down to the ground with him. So at minus 150 in the, on the current money line, I do like Sabatini. I think he has a slight cardio advantage. Maybe I'm being biased here, but just watching some of his fights, watching how he fought against Tristan Conley, you know, that was a fight where he dominates round one and two because of takedown positions and control. In round three, he's just being, you know, cerebral, being smart, you know, fighting at a distance, circling, and you could see that he was on his bicycle. He was comfortable moving. Um, here's another three-round fight. He should be, I think he's going to have, again, a slight cardio edge. Finishing ability, I think Sabatini clearly has an edge there, too. We talked about how Tucker Lutz now is on a three-fight streak where he's gotten decisions after he did have some finishes in the earlier part of his promotion but once he got into contender series now his first ufc fight he's not finishing fights as much and you flip that over to you know sabatini he's finished two of his last three fights by by submission and he's finished three of his last four fights by either submission or knockout so that means look in the ufc he's got a finish and he's also got a decision win um so and he's also got a cage fury championship with an arm bar so He's got the ability to finish. Uh, I think grappling-wise, there's definitely an edge there for, again, Sabatini. Tucker Lutz is not a bad grappler. Um, he's got good defensive grappling skills. You can see that when you watch film on him. But there's a danger lurking. And so you're going to have to imagine anytime a grappling situation arises, Sabatini is the one who's going to be the more lethal of the two. This is going to come down to smarts. It's also going to come down to, I think, good coaching in the corner. All right. So let's imagine the fight is 1-1 after, after two rounds. And I could see that. I could see Tucker Lutz winning a round because of the striking. Um, the body kicks, um, the leg kicks, just kicking game in general. Um, he's also very athletic and can move. Um, in terms of another round, maybe Sabatini gets a takedown. He wins that round. So we go 1-1 one, one to the third round. It's going to require some good coaching in the corner to let their fighter know what's really going on. Where do we sit here? Are we down maybe two rounds to nothing? Is it 1-1? One, one? Um, how do we win this last round? Again, I think the path to victory for Tucker Lutz, keep it on your feet, strike at a distance at plus 130. That's not a bad bet if you like him. I think Tucker Lutz by decision, if you really like Tucker Lutz, Tucker Lutz by decision. You're going to get some nice plus money there. As for Sabatini, I think Sabatini by, by a submission. Got to look at that prop when it comes out. Sabatini by decision, another prop to consider. But if you're just taking Sabatini straight up at minus 150, it's more or less even money. I like Sabatini here. I think right now, here's a young man who's about to get on a roll. I think he goes 3-0 and here in the UFC. I think Tucker Lutz gets himself in a situation where he's not able to keep this like grappler, wrestler off of him. So either loses two of the three rounds because of position control or 
loses the fight by some kind of submission where he has to tap out. So that's the breakdown, guys. I like Sabatini to win the fight. All right, the main card opens up with a bantamweight bout between the American fighter Adrian Yanez and Davy Grant from the United Kingdom. Grant 11-5 overall, 3-2 in his last five fights. He's plus 210 on the money line, 35 years old in 11 months, so he'll be 36 years old soon. 5'8 and a height with 69 inch reach. He trains out of SBG South Shield and SBG Bishop Auckland. As for Yanez, he's 14-3 overall. He's on a 7-fight winning streak, currently minus 275 on the money line. He's about to be 28 years old, 5'7 and height with 70 inch reach. He's training out of Metro Fight Club. Currently, the uh, public vote here on Tapology has Yanez as the favorite, getting just about 90% of the votes compared to 10% coming in here for Grant. I do think Yanez most likely wins the fight, um, but this was a little bit scary. I don't have the world of confidence. Let's look here a little bit more at the numbers here. So for uh, strikes landed, for example, Yanez is landing 6.13 strikes per minute compared to 4.21 for Grant. So a little more output for Yanez, and that makes sense. When you watch Yanez fight, um, he's not much of a kicker, though he does throw some nice kicks from time to time, and he can knock somebody out with a head kick. But most of his actions with his hands, a lot of counter punches, a lot of combinations, um, doesn't get off balance, stays on balance. A lot of his punches are straight down the pipe. Um, just a very good overall boxer. Um, as for Davy Grant, you know, his boxing is not terrible, but I would give Yanez uh, an edge here in the boxing department. Now, strikes defended here or strikes landed against them. For Yanez, he's allowing 4.8 strikes per minute. And for uh, Davy Grant, 3.25. So, you know, both these guys, their output's a little bit more than what they're receiving, so not so bad. Now, for takedown offense, this is where it's interesting now. For Yanez, in three UFC fights, he's 3-0. He's got three finishes. Very impressive. But he has not, not a single takedown, right? Not a single takedown. As for Davy Grant, he's landing two takedowns per 15-minute fight. And he's a veteran. He's about, what, six, seven, eight fights already in the UFC. So he's definitely takedown um, active. He's going to land a takedown or so per fight. Can he get Yanez down? Well, Yanez has a 100% takedown defense, but here's the thing. When you watch Yanez fight, he gets distracted so much by just fighting with his hands, and he stands very, very tall, that if Grant sets things up well, he should be able to at least get some back control time, at least one or two takedowns. Could that actually win him the fight? Not sure. Um, Grant's a pretty durable fighter. Um, he's a veteran. Um, 35 years old, yes, so he's getting up there. There's a seven... Seven-year age, I'm sorry, eight years age difference here for these guys. And so Giannis is, you know, approaching his prime, whereas Davy Grant, you know, is definitely getting some mileage there. Um, but Grant is 11-5 and five overall, right? Hasn't been in wars, hasn't, have, you know, haven't fought 30 or 40 fights. Um, and uh, and he could take a beating too. You know, he could take some shots. Um, he's a pretty durable fighter. So um, I think takedowns could play a role in at least a round going in the way of Davy Grant, right? So this, this may end up being two rounds to one for Giannis. But if it gets sweaty, and again, Davy Grant can get some ground time, he can neutralize the fight, that could be his path to victory. Um, in terms of their fighter IQ, uh, look, I, I think Giannis is a very hot fighter right now. You know, seven-fight winning streak. Now, the three fights that he has in UFC, he finished all three of them. Now, prior to that, he was in LFA, Cage Fury. So he was fighting in some very good promotions prior to coming into uh, the UFC. And actually, I want to note something about his prior uh, losses here. He lost to Miles Johns and D'Amico Pilarte in the LFA. Both of those guys are current UFC fighters. So look, even when he's lost to guys in the past, um, that was by split decision against Miles Johns and split decision to Pilarte. Both split de decision losses, and these are guys are both currently in the UFC. So Giannis is no joke. Um, I do want to point to something, though. If you look at the last three fights, you're going to see the Victor Rodriguez fight, head kick, amazing, unbelievable, round one, um, just beautiful striking. Um, in, his in the second to last fight against Lopez, 
you know, again, wears him down over time in the fight, has nice boxing, hits him with a one-two. Lopez doesn't even know what happened, drops. It may be a little bit early of a stoppage, but still, you can see that punching power. And you can see how he kind of wears on guys over the fight. He reminded me a little bit of like the Diaz brothers in terms of how fluid and easy the punches come out for him. He never gets off balance. Everything's within his zone. But he's like a sniper. At any moment, he can increase the power on one of his shots, and that can be the shot that hurts a guy. His last fight, though, against Randy Costa, I think we saw where the chink in the armor was. He stands tall, um, and that's Giannis. He stands a little bit tall. He doesn't mind taking a jab or two. In that fight against Costa, he took about a jab or 15 or 20 too many in that first round. He was cut up. He was noticeably beat up between rounds one and two. You could see it. His head movement was not very good. His, he just kind of stood right there, took the jabs, and looked right back at the guy. He was on his heels a little bit. Had Costa had a better gas tank, uh, maybe a little more experience, he could have probably won that fight. He definitely won round one. Round two, they come out. Yanez was doing a little bit better at the end of round one, but round one definitely goes to Costa. Um, Yanez is definitely cut up, but Costa slows down so much in round two. You can see he's like, wait, I don't know how to get this guy out of here. I hit him with a lot of stuff already. He's still coming after me. I don't have the gas tank, can't move my feet. And so Costa eventually just shells up, falls to his knees, doesn't really get hurt or stunned. It was just a TKO, and Giannis shows a lot of durability. He's definitely got a chin. Um, Giannis ate a lot of shots in that fight, but it also showed you, look, there's some ways here for a smart fighter, get in and out, land some jabs. You know, when Giannis starts coming forward, he has a nice high stance. That's where Davy Grant can maybe shoot and get him to the ground, win some position control time. Um, again, though, I don't want to ignore the fact that Giannis is on a seven-fight winning streak. He's a massive finisher, okay? The guy's finished six of his last seven wins. Those fights he's won by by a finish of some sort, whether it's a submission finish or a striking submission uh, combination of finishes. So um, I do like Giannis, but at minus 275, he's going against a veteran, a guy who's pretty good at grappling, a guy who will you know be smart in his approach. He's 4-3 and three in the UFC. You know, anyone who's 4-3 and three in the UFC, you got to give the guy at least some credit. He was on three-fight winning streak against Popov, Day, and Martinez before he just recently lost by decision to Marlon Vera. Now, Marlon Vera is not a world beater, but he's pretty decent. And if you go back to 2016, when he fought Marlon Vera, he beat him by decision. So he's got some decent wins um, over a few guys here in the UFC. He's no slouch. And I think at plus 210, you know, the money line is a little disrespectful here. Early on, I'd say it's least worth a small little dog shot, a small sprinkle here on Davy Grant. If you want to be specific, it's most likely going to be Davy Grant by, by some kind of uh, decision. Because if you look again on the other side of Yanez, good gas tank, very durable. I don't see Grant as being a knockout, you know, you know, artist or knocking out Giannis, but I do see him squeaking out two rounds. It gets ugly. Um, and for Giannis, hasn't been to decision in a while, is used to knocking guys out, probably thinking I'm going to knock this 35-year-old man out. Davey Grant, one more thing about him that concerns me. He does cut a little bit early, um, and if he cuts, he's tend to be, he tends to be a bleeder. So he's got to be careful with that. But if he keeps the fight at range, uses his range, you know, lands a few jabs, Gets a few takedowns. This could be a little bit of the upset of the night here on the main card. Um, we'll talk about the other main card, you know, fights as well. But this one could be one of the upsets because right now, currently, is the biggest um, favorite. Oh, no, actually, Santos is probably the biggest favorite at this point. But the point is this. At almost minus 300, be very careful of, of betting on Giannis straight up. Be very careful of parlaying him. Davy Grant's a veteran. He's been around the block. Um, 35 years old. He knows what's at stake. Um, I think he's watched the film as well. He saw what happened that cost the fight. So with all, this, with all that said, I'm going to go dog or pass here with this fight here. I think if you're going to bet the fight, it's a dog or pass. But I do believe if you had a gun to my head, 
I would choose Giannis, but I'm going to go as a dogger pass with this fight. I think the old man Grant surprises some people here. I'll put a little bit of money on this by the time the fight closes, but uh, at this time right now, even plus 210 is not that bad. Good luck with this one, guys. Right up next, we got a women's flyweight bout between Joanne Wood and Taylor Santos. Joanne Wood is formerly known as Joanne Calderwood. She recently got married, so now it's just Wood. She's 35 years old from Scotland, 15 and 6 overall, 2 and 3 in her last five fights, 5 foot 6 in high with 65 and a half inch reach. She trains at a syndicate MMA. As for Taylor Santos, a 28 year old Brazilian fighter, she's 18 and 1 overall, 4 and 1 in her last five fights, 5 foot 6 in high with 68 inch reach. She trains at an Astra fight team. Now, on the money line here, you got Santos at a big favorite as minus 300. You can get Calderwood on the other side at plus 225. Wood's landing. 6.75 strikes per minute compared to 4. Point, I'm sorry, 3.55 to Santos. It's a little busier of a fighter for Joanne Wood. And if you watch her fight, you can understand why that makes sense here. She's not a gigantic wrestler or grappler per se, but she likes to box. Um, she can take a few punches herself. Kicking, boxing, striking. Um, that's her path to victory. Volume fighter. Um, she has some power in her hands, but she again, she's more of a volume fighter. That's sort of her path to victory. So that makes sense here. Now, she's absorbing 4.5 strikes per minute, which is not bad. And Santos is absorbing two strikes per minute. So both of them are dishing out more than they're receiving, which is good. Now, for Santos, I'll say this. She's got a slight reach advantage in this fight. Same height, but slight reach advantage. She's a good striker, but she's evolving and getting better at it. That little bit of a reach, I'm not sure it's going to play a big part in this fight. But I imagine their striking numbers are going to be similar. Now, the wrestling is where I believe Santos will have the big advantage here. But striking-wise, I see there's going to be a slight advantage here for Santos because of the power. So I can see Wood having to cover up a few times, allowing Santos to land some combinations. Now, for takedown offense, Wood's landing 1.62 takedowns per 15 minutes compared to Santos, who's landing 2.60. So Santos is a little busier for her takedowns, but they're both decent wrestlers. Again, with Santos at 28 years old, we're seeing a bigger evolution in her last few fights. She's younger. She's making progressions. I mean, she's 18 and one overall, so she's not like she's losing fights. But the point is, you see the, how the evolution of that fighter is going, the improvement compared to Calderwood. I almost called it Calderwood. Compared to Wood, who's 35 years old, obviously, who's married, you know, at the end part of her career, um, sort of getting out of her prime years, right? Now, for takedown defense, Wood's defending 63% of takedowns against her, which is a very good number, and Santos at 88%. Now, According to Tapology here, it looks like um, Santos is a big favorite, getting almost three-quarters of the vote, 75% coming in for Santos, 25% coming into Wood, which I do agree with. Um, I do like you know Santos to win the fight. Um, I believe what we have here is a classic case of one fighter who's kind of skyrocketing in the up and up, and then we have a fighter in Wood who, when you're looking at her recent fight history, it's sort of up and down, right? Win a fight, lose a fight, win a fight, lose a fight. Now, her loss, last fight she lost, it was a split decision against Lauren Murphy. Now... Lauren Murphy, she's getting older, 38 years old or so at the fight. But Lauren Murphy, say what you want about her, has been a decent overall, you know, fighter over the years. Um, she just recently fought in a title fight where she, where she got knocked out. Um, but the point is, that was a split decision loss and not a bad loss. Her prior fight against Jessica I, she wins that fight. Um, I try to wrestle her the entire time. What I liked about that fight for Joanne Wood is that she was able to defend some of the wrestling, was able to go ahead and land her strikes. Um, she punished I. You could see I's face was beat up. Um, and so it was a nice overall boxing performance for Joanne Wood. Her prior fight before that, she gets submitted by Jennifer Maya, which, you know, Maya's a good fighter. I, again, I don't hold that against her. Losing against Lauren Murphy, losing against Jennifer Maya, Maya these are the, some of the sort of top contenders in that division. Now, her prior fight, she wins a split decision over Andrea Lee. Now, Andrea Lee, that win has now aged very well because Andrea Lee is now on a two-fight winning streak, looking pretty good. She came in as a dog last weekend or so, won her fight. So it's a nice win. I would just ask you to watch that fight, though. The link's in the description. 
in my opinion, I thought Angeli actually won that fight. Um, I do not believe, in my opinion, that Joanne Wood won that fight. Now, the judges had it differently, of course, but it was a split decision. So one judge did agree with me. Um, I thought Angeli had control time in round one, round two. And that brings me to a specific issue um, with the way that Joanne Wood fights. If you take Joanne Wood down and you do have decent grappling, top control um, you know, technique, she doesn't get up. Okay, she spent an entire round there against Andrea Lee on her back, never got back up. Um, and it wasn't like Andrea Lee is like, a, you know, an amazing wrestler, amazing at BJJ. The point is she couldn't get back up. She showed a lack of ability to get up. And it wasn't because of fatigue, because in the last round of the fight against Andrea Lee, after losing what I believe the first and second round, in round three, she's piecing up um, Lee. She's actually boxing, doing good, lighting her feet. And that's where I believe Joanne Wood is special. That's her path to victory. I believe if she can keep the fight at distance, can use her combinations, can use some leg kicks, body kicks. That's where I believe her game is at. The problem here for her is Santos is a decent wrestler, and she's getting better at wrestling. And so I believe that's going to be one of the deciding factors. Look look at Santos here, recent history. Let's um, take a peek here. Now, Santos hasn't necessarily beat the best in the division either. Um, I'm looking at what's her best victory here. I would say possibly Molly McCann. I mean, she beats Jillian Robertson by decision. She beats Roxanne Mataferi by decision. Molly, Molly McCann back 2020 by decision. So, you know, you don't love the fact that she's going to decision against these kind of fighters. These are what I would deem as lower-level fighters in that division, especially Roxanne Mataferi, who's like almost 50 years old. I'm just joking, but she's you know in her 40s, basically. Um, that's the kind of fight here where you want to see a younger fighter like Santos finish a fighter like that. Now, she dominated. was unanimous decision. So her last three fights, all unanimous decisions. And those were her first. Um, actually, no. She's actually 3-1 and one in the UFC. Her her opening fight in, in her debut for UFC was against Mara Barella. I'm going to talk about that fight. That link's in the description. So she, fight, she fights Barella in her opening fight in 2019 for UFC. And she just gets completely out-wrestled. So on one side of it, you look at that fight two years ago and you're like, oh, my God, she can't wrestle at all. If uh, Joanne Wood can just get her on the ground or wrestle a little bit, she'll be in trouble. But then she's evolved from that point, okay? Then she started getting better at wrestling. She started defending more takedowns. She started getting takedowns herself. And so I've seen a clear evolution in that area. That opening fight for her, that UFC debut, yeah, not not great. <laughs> I'd like to see something better than that. Um, just some more notes here on both these fighters. Yeah, I don't want to leave anything out. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, just some further notes here on Wood. I mean, in her fight against Murphy, Murphy was 38 years old. They did go toe-to-toe, -to -toe, and Murphy's a top-level contender here at this point. Um, but this is going to be the third fight for Wood in, in the last year. So very active. You like that. Um, at the same time, she's gone to split decision twice in her last four fights. So if you like her to win the fight, you got to kind of expect it may be close. It may get greasy. Um, I don't like that <laughs> in terms of a betting perspective. I don't want to put my money on someone who's going to split decisions very often. The money line here has Wood at plus 240. So, again, if you're looking for value and you're thinking, again, split decision possibly win for her, I guess it makes sense. Um, I think Santos at minus 305 is a little chalky. Uh, at the same time, though, you know, you could see where the younger fighter, you know, younger by almost eight years, um, you know, I think she has an advantage here in terms of finishing ability. I think she has a cardio advantage. I think she has a grappling wrestling advantage. You know, at the same time, you know, has she proven herself? Um, she's shown weakness in techniques and wrestling as well. I've seen Santos be in her back for, you know, a full round. Um, and in her opening fight against Borello again, you know, Borello completely, you know, out-wrestled her, you know, beat her out. Now, Borello has lost five of her last six fights. So, again, put that in perspective here. And against Mataferi, she was favored at minus 410 coming into that fight against Monteferi in 2021. And she ends up winning that fight, but it was by decision. So, 
you know, there's still some questions here about, about Santos. What I think what happens here is most likely is a decision win, you know, for Santos at minus 305. That's kind of a bit of a sweat. I'll have to put Santos in a bit of a parlay at some point, which we'll talk about at the end of the episode. Um, but overall here, I think Santos is a better fighter. I think she's going to wrestle Wood. I think she's going to take Wood to the ground. She'll own control points or control time. And there'll be some moments for Wood. I can see Wood landing some punches. Um, one more thing about Wood. She bleeds from the nose very easily. So even in the fights where she's winning and she's tagging up her opponents, if Santos lands any type of combinations that hits her you know, in the nose area, you'll see Wood bleeding pretty quickly. Whereas Santos, in her prior fights, when you see when she, when she does fight um, and gets into a bit of a brawl, she doesn't bleed very easily. She's got kind of a darker skin, more of a tan, um, which is kind of nice. The judges don't see the damage as much. I mean, for Wood, she's kind of showed the damage... Anyway, I hate to go against a Scottish fighter. I do like Joanne Calderwood. I think for her at 36 years old, well, about to be 36 years old. She's 35 right now, but she'll be 36 soon. Um, and for Santos, who's 27, about to be 28, you get the point here. Um, here's a fighter where I think she's at the end of her UFC run. She's done the best she can recently. She's been there with some Warriors. Uh, I do give a lot of credit, but uh, I think she drops another fight here and drops now three of the last four. And for her, it's sort of the curtain call. So again, I like Santos to win the fight. As a straight up bet here, Minus 300, a little too chalky for me. It's going to be a parlay piece. Okay, next fight on the card is going to be a bantamweight bout between Ronnie Yaya, the Brazilian veteran, and Kyung Ho Kang from South Korea. Kyung Ho Kang goes by Mr. Perfect. He's 17-8 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights. 34 years old. He's 5'9 in height with a 73-inch reach. He's at a Busan team MAD which is also in South Korea. As for Mr. Yaya, who's fought 38 total fights, 18 of those in the UFC, he's 27-10-1 overall, 3-1-1 in his last five fights. He has a 12-4-2 record in the UFC. He's 36 years old in 11 months, so he will be 37 years old soon. He's 5'6 in height with a 68-inch reach. He's at a constrictor team. Now, as for their height and reach, he's gonna, he, Kyung Ho Kang is going to be 3 inches taller here than Mr. Yaya. He's also going to have a 5-inch reach advantage. We'll see how that plays out as we break down the fight now. According to Tapology, it looks like our veteran fighter, Mr. Yaya, is getting 62% of the votes as opposed to or 38% of the votes coming in for Kang. Now, I also like Yaya to win the fight, but I will at least uh, tell you it, it wasn't the easiest breakdown. There were moments where I thought, is age going to be a factor? Um, then I thought, well, maybe the reach be the factor. Will Kang be able to pick him apart from the outside? And ultimately, what I came back around to is the fact that Ronnie Yaya, you know, that 12-4-2 record in the UFC, you don't amass that kind of a record in the UFC, 18 total fights, keeping your, you know, your head above water. The submission wins, you know, of his last four victories, I'm sorry, last five wins have all been submission wins. Now, he has dropped a fight or two in that process. I'm just saying his last five victories have all been submission wins. A guy with 38 total fights, tons of submission wins under his belt. You got to consider that prop bet as a, as a likely outcome here in this fight. Now, looking back at Yaya's most recent fight, we have the link there in the description for you if you want to watch that fight. He went ahead and he fought Ray Rodriguez. He won that fight via arm triangle, round two. Uh, it was a UFC fight night event back in... Uh, March of earlier this year. So, you know, it was a decent win, but here's one of the things that I don't love about Yaya's recent fight history. Like, he's got wins over Luke Sanders and Russell Doan and Henry Biones, um and Ray Rodriguez um, and guys like that, but he doesn't seem to have a single significant, like, win recently that's like, oh, there's this guy or, or that guy. He lost to Joe Soto back in 2017. He lost to, lost to Ricky Simone 2019. Now, by decision. Another thing about Ronnie Yaya, he's only been finished three times, I believe, in his entire pro career, um, and he hasn't been finished since 2000 and, oh, wow, 2009 or something like that, so he's very durable, even in his older age, 
And though he's 37, or about to be 37, three years the senior of Kang, he's got a lot more wear on his tires. That also makes me wonder, you know, hey, has he taken too many hits to the head? Um, is he, you know, is he just getting beat up too much over the course of his latter part of his career? But I'm going to answer that question by saying no. When you look at his recent fights, they're going to decision or he's winning by submission. Um, so, for example, his last fight, he wins by submission round two. The fight before that, it's a majority draw against Enrique Barzola. Barzola is a pretty good fighter. Prior fight before that, loses by decision to Ricky Simone. Prior fight, Luke Sanders wins round one submission against Russell Doan. He wins round three submission uh, against Briones, wins round one su submission. So it's not like Yaya's going in there at the later part of his career and going in and getting to these wars and getting cut up and getting beat up. Again, against Joe Soto, he loses by decision. So he's very durable in his older, older age. Shows athletic still ability, still shows the ability to wrestle and find himself in good submission positions. With Kang, you know, the one thing I do want to mention here is the striking numbers, right? So for striking numbers, this is where, again, Kang has a slight edge. For striking numbers landed here for strikes per minute, Kang's landing 2.52 compared to 1.57 for Ronnie Yaya. Makes sense. Again, Yaya's not a big-time boxer, more of a submission guy, more of a BJJ guy. Um, he's got, like, that old man strength, you know? He's that guy, if you've ever been to a, you know, a mixed martial arts gym and train and roll on the mats, those guys that are older and smaller, and they just, man, they're, they're great with the grappling. Um, and that's the kind of fighter Yaya is. Now, in terms of absorbing strikes, Yaya's absorbing 1.7 strikes per minute compared to 2.43 for Kang. So they're both absorbing about the same amount of their dishing out, which is not great. Um, for takedown offense... Kang is landing 2.53 takedowns per 15-minute fight compared to 2.89 for Yaya. So about the same there. So just about three takedowns for, per, per 15 minutes for Yaya and about two and a half takedowns per 15 minutes for Kang. For takedown defense, Yaya's defending takedowns at a 24% rate compared to 71% for Kang. Now, I don't know that that's going to be much of a factor because I believe like if, if Kang tries to take down Yaya, I can see Yaya rolling with that. He has no problem working from his back. He has no problem working from, you know, positions that most people wouldn't want to work from. So that's why his takedown defense is also kind of low. So however this fight gets to the ground, that's where Yaya wants it. He doesn't mind if he's giving up position to get to the ground or if he's getting a takedown, if it's against the fence, however it may be. If you're Kang, even though Kang is averaging two and a half takedowns or so per, per uh, normal three-round fight, he's probably going to be trying to stay away from that um, and looking more to keep the fight on the feet and looking more to basically use his distance, use his size, use his size advantage, his height advantage, reach advantage. Problem becomes, again, you know, Yaya is a heck of a veteran. And when you look at these guys side by side, you can't, you can't ignore the fact that Yaya has fought a lot more fights has fought a lot more UFC fights. Now, let's specifically more about Kang. Something about Kang that popped out to me is I'm looking at his finish rate. I'm looking at the amount of fights he has finished. So for Kang, he's 9-2-1 overall in the UFC, right? But looking at that record a little more clearly, okay, of his last six total fights, four of them have gone to split decision. That's kind of wild, right? So he's had four fights go to split decision in his last six fights. Now, one of those splits he lost. The other three he won. So he lost a split against Ricardo Ramos, which is not bad because Ramos is a pretty good fighter. That was back in 2018. But he's coming off of two straight split decision wins against Pyong Yung Lee and Brandon Davis. Then going back to 2020 when he had a split decision win also over Tanaka. Here's my point. He's been flirting with like playing with fire here. He could very well be two out of he could he could be two and four in his last um, six fights instead of being you know. Um, five and one. So the bottom line is he's been playing with fire, getting split decision wins, not showing any ability to finish a fight. And if you're someone like Ronnie Yaya, you know, listen, I could push pace and pressure. I could expose my, expose my head a little bit. I don't have to worry about getting hit here. Just find myself in the positions I want to get into, work my BJJ, get the fight to the ground. So I think what happens here, 
I think the old man could win by two ways. Either one, Yaya is able to just keep position on the ground, get some submission attempts, even if he doesn't get them, they kind of look good for the judges. He wins control points, wins against the cage, wins on the ground, out grapples, out wrestles, transitions. So even if he gets taken down, he ends up transitioning, getting top on, on top of Kang. I think we see this for two of the three rounds, and he gets the win that way. If he doesn't submit him, because again, look at, look at Yaya's recent fights. I think, again, five fights in a row that he's won. His last five victories have all been by submission. Now, within that, he lost a decision you know, decision to Ricky Simone. He lost a, he got a majority draw against Barzala, Barzala, and he got a decision loss against Soto. So, bottom line is this. Yaya's 37 years old. Yeah, he's got 38 total fights. But you don't want to roll around on the ground with this guy, okay? He's going to eventually scoop up a submission. So if the fight's in the ground, which is probably where he's going to work it and make it happen, you could see the fight ending at some point within those 15 minutes where he's going to get a submission win. That prop is not out yet, but I would look closely at it. I like y'all got to win the fight. I'm pretty confident on this fight. I'm not sure that I'm confident to put a whole unit up here on this, but I'll at least put a half a unit and if I'm doing a parlay that's like a lottery parlay of some kind, I'll be looking at Yaya in that lottery parlay. So I got the old man here, Yaya. Going and winning now his 39th total fight and moving to 38-10-1 overall. And as for Kang, look, he's been on a bit of a nice streak. Um, but man, he's been, again, a lot of split decisions. Um, hasn't beaten anyone of significance. Ricardo Ramos was probably his toughest competition, and that was three years ago. And he didn't come up on the right side of the you know victory with that one. So once again, no, no, no threat to finish anything. Um, he's not going to th pose a threat. And if you're looking at his topology and saying, well, you know, he's got a submission win over Kennedy. He's got a submission win over Ishihara. Look, good luck submitting Ronnie Yaya. <laughs> you're not going to submit Ronnie Yaya. And again, back to Ronnie Yaya's topology. Ronnie Yaya has only been finished a few times in his career. And I'm trying to think the last time that he was submitted would have been 2006. <laughs> So almost 15 years ago is the last time that Ronnie Yaya was submitted via guillotine choke in round one. And uh, that's the only submission loss in his entire career. So you're talking about one of the highest level BJJ guys in this entire division. I think that's too much for Kang. I like Ronnie Yaya. And we're up to the co-main event here. It's a welterweight bout between two American fighters, Michael Chiesa and Sean Brady. Chiesa is 34 years old. He's 17 and five overall, four and one in his last five fights, six foot one in high with a 75 inch reach. He's currently a slight dog in the money line at plus 130. As for Sean Brady, who's 29 years old, he's 14 and 0, undefeated fighter, and he was actually 5 and 0 as an amateur, so he's won 19 fights in a row as a mixed martial artist. He's 5 foot 10 in height with a 73 inch reach. He's coming out of Renzo Gracie, Philadelphia, and Chase is coming out of Skijitsu. Now, as for their striking numbers, Brady's landing 4.72 strikes per minute, absorbing 3.6 strikes per minute. Chase is landing 1.7 and absorbing 1.72, and that lends more to the way that these guys fight. For Chiesa, he's more of a grappler. Uh, looking to get some missions, so he's not looking to strike too much. He will throw a lot of strikes, um, but those are setup strikes. So he'll throw air strikes, you know, punches, jabs that have no intention of landing, just to distract his opponent, looking to eventually work a takedown. Um, as for Sean Brady, he's landing 2.69 takedowns per 15 minutes, compared to 3.62 for Chiesa. So that number tells you Chiesa's going to land maybe one or two more takedowns in this fight than Sean Brady. I'll, we'll see how that works out. I mean, you got to consider this. Sean Brady has a 100% takedown defense, and Chiesa has a 68% takedown defense. I think when you compare them side by side, Sean Brady, who's slightly shorter in stature, uh, roughly three inches shorter in stature, um, he's got the lower leverage, very thick, very strong. I believe he's stronger in the clinch. And so if there's takedowns to be had, I believe Brady will get those takedowns and have the advantage. Now, will Brady get takedown maybe once in this fight by Chiesa? Will he come in, be off balance at some point, and Chiesa set him up? 
It could be. Chiesa's fighting style is to jab, circle his opponent, um, and mentally wear down his opponent. So eventually his opponent gets impatient, wants to close the distance. When that happens, he'll drop. Great technique. Double leg takedown. He can start working from the top. Um, some of his you know, less competitive opponents or opponents he was able to dominate, um, like, the, like the Neil Magny fight. Okay, He fought Neil Magny back in... Um, excuse me here. Back in... Uh, Oh, earlier this year. So January this year, he wins that fight by decision. And pretty much it was top position and control points. He was able to get key takedowns. Magni could not get up, couldn't defend himself. Um, and so he won in that fashion. His prior fight, Rafael Dos Anjos, um, prior fight before that, Diego Sanchez. His last three UFC fights that he's won have all been via decision where he's used some level of control time, um, not submitting anyone, not, not finishing those fights, but winning on points. And I do have to mention this. Michael Chiesa, who's a very cerebral person, smart guy, he works as a UFC commentator. Um, clearly, he's transitioning into another you know, part of his life. Um, you know, is, does that mean he's not like, does he not have the, the grit, you know, that fighter's edge that you want um, in a hungry young fighter who's maybe not making a lot of money yet, who doesn't really have a lot of options, this is all they've got. Um, and I say that because in his last fight versus Vincente Luque, he loses that fight. Now, Luque is a very good fighter, okay? So there's nothing to be embarrassed about. But at one point, he's, he's got Vincente Luque in a choke. It looks like Chiesa is going to get a chance to maybe win this fight. Luque fights his ass off, gets out of the choke, immediately reverses position, and he gets a Darce choke on um, Chiesa. And Chiesa, instead of fighting in the way that Luque did and fighting to all exhaustive measures, he tapped out. And when he tapped, he was fine. He wasn't like woozy. He wasn't about to go to sleep. And I'm not questioning, you know, his heart. He's a smart guy. He's in here fighting. He's, he's a very accomplished fighter. He's got some of the most impressive submission wins in UFC history. Um, he's fought a lot of UFC fights. I believe he's 10 and 5 overall in the UFC. Um, so kudos to him. It just seems like here's a guy who maybe has lost that animal edge, right? He's tapping out instead of falling asleep. Back 2018, he gave up a win to Anthony Pettis. Anthony Pettis beat him. That was one of the last Pettis wins that he actually had, um, and that was by triangle armbar. And I want to mention that. Four of the last five fights that um, Chiesa has lost, they've lost by, he's lost those by submission. Now, here's a guy who's a purple belt in BJJ who's known for being a submission guy. Well, his last four, last five fights he's lost, four of them have been by submission. Here he's going against a guy like Sean Brady, who's got lower leverage, who's a high, former high school wrestler, Philadelphia guy who was a mechanic, started training BJJ that's on the side. Clearly he had some hidden talent that you know he didn't know about. Um, undefeated right now as a professional, has won several of his first UFC fights, finished his last two UFC opponents, um, has a purple belt in BJJ, and it's not just a purple belt. He's out of one of the Gracie gyms here in Philadelphia. Um, if you're getting a purple belt from, from any of the Gracie clans or any of the Gracie you know, tree, um, those tend to be a little more worth than some of the other purple belts that are handed out there. And you can see it in the way he fights. He's very dangerous on the ground. I do want to mention he also crossed paths and trains a little bit with my boy Pat Sabatini, who's out of NPR Endurance. Shout out to the local fighters. Um, any, anyway, when you look at Sean Brady fight, and we looked at some of his most recent fights, Take a look at his fight against Matthews, his last fight. Um, he gets a round three triangle choke. It's not just that he finishes the opponent. He spends round one and two grinding this guy down the same way I could see him doing a Chiesa. Key takedowns. Once gets a guy on the ground, very heavy on top position. Doesn't land a lot of heavy strikes. Not a big like elbow guy or cut up his opponent. But he will lay so heavy on his opponent. He wears them out. He exhausts them. He always is looking for submissions. He knows how to transition. He's very quick and athletic on the ground. I think he'll have a quickness and an athletic advantage here over Chiesa. On the feet, 
I see them both as even boxers, okay? If there's one critique I have here on, on Brady and one thing I can see that he needs to improve on in the future and where he will be tested will be if he has an elite striker in front of him who has good footwork, who can avoid the takedowns and land some hard blows. It looks at times like Brady is willing to take too many shots and doesn't have enough side-to-side head movement. Um, and look, he hasn't really been tagged, hasn't really been hurt. So it, it makes sense. He's still got that you know cockiness, got that edge where I could take a punch or two. I'd like to see a little more head movement. But again, the other side here, he's going against Michael Chiesa. Michael Chiesa is not known for having power in his hands. So, you know, I have to, you have to understand that Sean Brady doesn't have to worry too much about that. If anything, the biggest worry would be submission-wise. And I believe Brady is a much better BJJ practitioner here than Chiesa. So if it goes to the ground in any way, shape, or form, if that's Chiesa getting a takedown or Brady getting a takedown, Brady will reverse position so quickly if he gets taken down anyway. He's so athletic and so quick. He will eventually be on top. He will wear down Chiesa. If it goes to decision, I see it being two to three rounds easily for Brady. If it ends up not going to decision, it's going to be Brady getting a submission win of some kind. And again, Chase has lost four of his last five fights by submission. So um, in terms of their side-by-side comparisons, like experience-wise, um, yeah, I do give a slight, slight edge to Chase in experience because he's fought a few more UFC fights than Brady. Um but man, the undefeated record is impressive for Brady. In terms of fighter IQ, I do give an edge to fighter IQ for Sean Brady. And here's why. Let me explain this to you. It's like a reverse psychology thing. Michael Chiesa has been around. He's fought in a lot of fights. I see a guy now who's transitioning to another part of his life. He's going to fight a little bit longer. That tap out against Luke showed me a lot. It's the kind of guy where he doesn't have that animal instinct. Okay, so yes, he's smart. Yes, he knows what it takes to win. Now he's trying to win fights by technical means. He's trying to jab, stay on the outside, circle. When you see some of his recent fights, he looks tentative. He did not want to engage with Vicente Luque when they fought. He was working the outside several times in round one. Like he almost tripped and fell down because he was circling the cage so much and was backing up so much he was tripping on the cage. Um, Not the kind of fighter who looks like he's trying to mix it up. Here you got Sean Brady at 29 years old, a Philadelphia mechanic. You know, he's got that Rocky mentality. He's going to mix it up. He's going to throw some hard lower leg kicks. Um, he's going to force this guy to engage with him. The, the fight's going to go to the ground, and Brady will eventually wear him down. And I can see Chiesa easily tapping out here and being like, listen, I've got another career. I've got family. I've got things going on. So that's why I give the edge from a fighter IQ standpoint to Sean Brady because he still has the animal instinct. He still hasn't been rocked and hurt. He's out for blood. He has a lot of confidence. Um, In terms of cardio, I do give an edge to Brady as well because not only does he push pace and pressure, not only does he get takedowns, it seems as if his energy level in round three is almost the same as if round one. Okay, Chies is a little bit older, not old man, but a little bit older. I don't see Chiesa wrestling in the third round the way he tries to in round one and two because, again, it's tiresome. Sean Brady, he's drinking from the magic fountain. I don't know, but this guy has energy for days, and so I give him a slight cardio edge. As for finishing ability, I also give an edge to Brady. Again, he's finished his last two fights in a row. When you're looking at Chiesa, his last three or four wins have all been by decision. Okay, Uh, Boxing skill-wise, I believe they're even. They both throw just enough punches. They know how to throw some jabs. Sometimes Chiesa's jab will connect. It looks okay, but that's not really part of his game. And again, his striking numbers reflect that. It's just to set things up. Um, I believe Brady would strike more and would punch more if Chiesa would, 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 you know, would welcome that. Um, he seems to have confidence in his hands, does throw nicely straight punches. But eventually, the fight ends up on the ground anyway. And at that point, I don't think it's going to be much of a boxing match. Grappling advantage, I give an edge to Sean Brady. Um Michael Chiesa, I want to make this clear. He's 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 known as a very good grappler. Like this is sort of like his mo. That's like the biggest feather in his cap. Um, and he is very good at it. But you know, without sounding disrespectful, 
four of his last five losses have been by him getting submitted. So, you know, when he's working his BJJ, when he's getting his purple belt and he's becoming, you know, proficient in that, that art, was he also learning how to defend? <laughs> you know, was he also understanding the process of defending BJJ? Because it seems as if he didn't figure that one out. Um, if he was getting knocked out, um, if he was getting submitted every now and then, but no, he's actually losing by submission pretty much all the time when he loses a fight. So, you know, for me, if I'm a BJJ practitioner and I want to take guys to the ground and I want to use that means to winning fights, um, I also don't want to be worried about getting submitted myself. I would hope that that would be part of my tra training program. So that also leads me to a like, question again, Michael Chiesa's sort of his IQ in that area of his fight game. So all that said, at minus 150, I like Sean Brady. He might be one of my favorite picks on the main card and probably my favorite pick on the entire card. I just think the youth advantage, the wrestling advantage, the pace and pressure, Michael Chiesa's lack of wanting to engage, you know, just all arrows to me, point, you know, excuse me, point towards the local kid from Philadelphia. Let's go. We got Sean Brady. And we're up to the main event. It's a bantamweight bout between the Brazilian Caitlin Vera and Misha Tate of the United States. Tate's 35 years old, 19 and seven overall, three and two in her last five fights, five foot six in height with 67 inch reach. She trains out of Victory Athletics. She's currently a slight favorite of the money line at minus 120. And if you don't know who Misha Tate is, she's a former champion. Uh, we'll get more into her background, but uh, yeah, she's a pretty much an MMA legend. Um, as for Caitlin Vera, who's 30 years old, she's 11 and two overall, three and two in her last five fights. Five foot eight in height with 68 inch reach. So height wise, Vera's gonna be a little bit taller at two inches. Reach wise, they're about the same. Uh, Vera is out of Nova Uniao Manoas. Now in terms of tapology, it looks like Tate's a strong favorite here, getting 75% of the votes on tapology with only 25% of the votes coming up Vera. I'm imagining that's because again, Tate is a legend. She is a former champion. Um, I do think she's gonna win the fight as well, uh, but I do wanna explain to you outright that that was not an easy conclusion for me to get to. Um, and for most of the breakdown and most of the film review, I was on the side of Caitlin Vieira actually to win this fight. But once I started digging a little bit deeper, um, I'll explain to you why I'm on the side of, of uh, Tate. Anyway, so striking numbers here. Tate's landing 2.13 strikes per minute, absorbing 2.68. So not great there. She's absorbing a little bit more than she dishes out. Um, and the way she fights, you know, she likes to grapple, likes to take the fight to the ground, um, takes maybe one or two or three or four or five too many punches on the way in. But uh, that's her game plan, right? Um, for Vieira, she's landing 2.66 strikes per minute, so very similar to Tate. Uh, but she's also absorbing more than she's dishing out, and it's even worse for her at 3.84. So both of them, they have um, very, let's say, I don't want to say weak, but their boxing is one of their weakest parts of their game, okay? So grappling, wrestling, um, even some submissions on the, on the side of both fighters, that's their strong suit. Um, if they win by decision, it's typically from position points, position control, takedowns against the cage, back control, um, those techniques. Neither one of them has tremendous boxing power or knockout power. And even for Tate in her heyday when she became a champion, um, it wasn't because of her knockout power. It was her durability, her cardio, her submission ability. Um, for takedowns, Tate's averaging just over two takedowns per 15 minutes. For Vieira, the same thing, just over two takedowns per 15 minutes. Now for takedown defense, Vieira's defending at 92% rate and Tate at 52%. So very high rate there for Vieira. We'll see what happens in this fight. Um, I, I think what's gonna, what I think was gonna actually give at some point is the cardio is gonna be a factor. Um, I had to remind myself, this is a five round fight. It's the main event. Um, Misha Tate has been five rounds, okay? Matter of fact, in one of her most glorious moments of her career, she submitted Holly Holm in the fifth round of that fight. Um, it was a great fight, came down to like the final minute. Uh, Tate executes a very nice takedown. Uh, both fighters were tired, but Tate was still getting takedowns in round four and five of the championship rounds. 
Caitlin Vera, um, not that I'm saying she has terrible cardio, but this is going to be new territory for her. And if Misha Tate can take this fight to deeper waters, which I'm sure she can, she's a veteran, I think you're going to see who's tested there. And that's going to be for Vieira. It's going to be a tough test for her to keep up with the grappling, the wrestling, um, you know, the grappling expertise of Tate, because it's not just, the, you know, the wrestling game of Tate where she can get her down. If Tate's on her back, she can reverse position, I think, much better than Vieira. I've watched Vieira be on her back for full rounds, not be able to get up. I can imagine around four and five, when she's more tired, she's the bigger, you know, bigger frame here. And remember, at 5'8 versus 5'6 for Tate, I believe that tough, that's going to be tough for that big frame to get up. Tate's going to get some position points, maybe even a TKO or submission on the ground in round four or five as she wears down Vieira. Now, could Vieira outbox her, outstrike her in round one and two? Yeah, that's why initially I was on Vieira. That's why I thought maybe she could win this fight. And 35 years old versus 30. You start looking at Misha Tate, 35 years old. Um, let's just give a, a, a quick synopsis on Misha Tate's career, right? So she retired for about five and a half years, okay? Um, she ends up basically losing back-to-back -back fights, and that was against Raquel Pennington and Amanda Nunez. She lost her belt to Nunez in 2016. Follow-up fight against Raquel Pennington, loses by decision. It was just a tough overall fight. Um, now she's given an account that I guess in the, during that pass, she was not in a good place mentally, training, everything, coaching. She was off kilter, um, some relationship stuff as well going on. So she retires in 2016. That's it. So five years later, she comes back now. Um, and that was in July of this past year. She fights Marianne Renault, and she wins the fight. And it was like a perfect setup fight here for her to come back and fight someone like Marianne. Marianne was retiring. That was her last fight. She was 44 years old. Um, so she wins the fight by ground and pound in round three. And it was an overall decent, you know, fight for Tate. You can see some of the Tate of old. She can grapple. She can wrestle. Um, I did notice she's not as quick in some ways, which makes sense. Again, um, it's been five, six years, maybe a little bit of ring rust. And also just because she's a little bit older, she's a mother of two now. Um, during that last fight, side note, she was still uh, breastfeeding. Um, I'm not sure if she's still breastfeeding at the time of this fight, too. Um, that's got to take something from you as well. But anyway, She's on a mission. Her post-fight interviews have suggested that she's going for a title. It's not just for show. Um, she really means it. She sounds like, you know, she's smarter this time around. Um, she knows what she wants. She's setting herself out in a goal. So with that in mind, I believe she's always had a good also relationship with Dana White and the UFC. This, this opponent right here, Caitlin Vieira, I have to imagine Misha Tate probably was involved with choosing this opponent and not the other way around. For Caitlin Vieira, this is an opportunity for her to fight a legend, beat a legend, quality opponent. Um, looking back at Misha Tate's career, let's go back and look at some things that I noticed, which I thought were kind of odd. Her amateur debut, she loses to, to Liz Posner. Basically, Liz Posner fades out, doesn't become a fighter. Then her pro debut, she loses to Caitlin Young. Caitlin Young is 12 and 12 and still fighting, right? So she kind of has always been a dog, an underdog, someone who's like tripped and fall the first time, gets back up, keeps fighting, right? So she loses her pro debut, uh, both amateur debut, then goes on to end up having a pretty good, you know, basically early career fighting in strike force. She ends up coming across a girl named Ronda Rousey. You may have heard of her. They fight in strike force, <laughs> in strike force and Ronda Rousey armbar, armbars, or, uh, armbars her, right? So then from there, she goes on to fight Kat Zingano, loses to her as well prior to going to UFC. Then her first UFC fight is against, of all people, again, Ronda Rousey, and she gets arm barred again by Ronda Rousey for her pro debut. Um, and I'm sorry, her UFC debut. From there, she goes on to bounce back and beat Liz Kamush, uh, Sarah McCann, Jessica I, Holly Holm, and that was the peak of her career. 2016, watch that fight. The, the link's in the description as usual. Um, what a moment there. Five-round fight. Holly Holm at the peak of her game. Holly Holm had just taken the title from Ronda Rousey in the fight before where she kicked Holly, you know, kicked Ronda Rousey, knocked some teeth out and the whole, whole deal. So 
huge win. You see in that fight the best of Misha Tate. Um, and I can't help it. And maybe I'm I'm being jaded by the tape and watching that film again. Misha Tate is just a good old-fashioned veteran. Okay, when you line her up against someone like Caitlin Vera, Caitlin Vera has not fought many people. She has not been in there with people like Holly Holm or Liz Como. She has not been in there with Sarah McCann or anyone of that caliber. And a matter of fact, let's look look at look who Caitlin Vera has been fighting. She's coming off of a loss to Yana Kunitskaya. Now, Yana Kunitskaya is another veteran. <clears throat> she's fought a lot of uh, different opponents, lost to most of the top-level fighters, but she's been around the block. But when you look at that fight, Caitlin Vera... Her strongest suit is grappling, wrestling, and maybe some jiu-jitsu because she is Brazilian. But she gets out-wrestled. She gets reversed on. She gets out-wrestled by a Russian fighter, Yana Kunitskaya, who's not known for being an amazing wrestler, more of a striker, kickboxer, um, works at range. But Caitlin Vera wanted to work in the clinch, wanted to work in close, and couldn't do much with it. Wasted time on top. Loses a decision. Her prior fight, she beats Sajara Eubanks. And I have to say, in that fight, I thought Eubanks just did not fight very intelligently. She probably could have won that fight if they fought it over. But again, very just subpar wrestling, subpar clinch control, never really busy in the clinch, never creating much damage, not cutting her opponent, not throwing elbows. Her prior fight before that against Irene Aldana. <clears throat> now that fight, the link's in the description as well, she gets hooked by a, a hook that she should have seen coming. It was the first punch. It wasn't even a combination. It wasn't like a one, two, three, then an, a late punch combination. She gets hooked right in front of her left hook, completely buckles her, knocks her down, um, ends the fight right there in round one. Throughout round one, she's trading with Irene Aldana and she's being reckless. She's being loop. She's throwing looping punches. She's leaving her head wide open. Um, she's basically trying to bang with her and thinking, oh, I can trade punches with you. Um, I can handle your heat. And you see Aldana setting punches up Aldana's backing up, so I did like the fact that Caitlin Vera was pushing tempo, you know, pushing her back, forcing her uncomfortable, um, but eventually Irene Aldana just times her because when it comes to Caitlin's punching, you can see her punches coming, they're not very powerful, um, she gets off balance, and if she tries that with Misha Tate, I gotta imagine the veteran's gonna catch her off balance, take her to the ground, win the fight on the ground. When it comes to Misha Tate, she has absolutely no problem at all if fans are booing or wherever the whole whole thing is going on there, she's she's going to take her opponent to the ground and win position points. She doesn't care how ugly or pretty it looks. She's going to get position points on the ground. Now, if she gets top position, full mount on the ground, she's going to overwhelm Caitlin Vera. She's going to elbow her. She might cut her up. She's going to knock her around. She's going to make it horrible for her down there. And I can see a TKO from that perspective. Remember, it's a five-round fight. Could Caitlin Vera win a round, even two rounds here again? should take because maybe she get some rushing wrestling position, or maybe she lands a few strikes. Uh, maybe she, you know, backs, you know, uh, backs up the veteran a little bit, maybe, but by round four, I've got to imagine here, the veteran here, Misha Tate is going to start wearing on her. When I lined up just their side-by-side -side comparisons, for example, experience, experience edge goes to Misha, Misha Tate, obviously former champion in this division. Um, IQ definitely the edge to Misha Tate. She's not only been around for a while. She's fought some of the best of the best. Whereas Vieira is literally just starting her UFC career. Um, it doesn't have a lot of experience. I mean, she does have a few fights. I don't want to say she hasn't fought anybody, um, but this is going to be her, what, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. This will be her eighth UFC fight, um, and she's lost two of her last three, okay? So um, for cardio, I'm going to give an edge to Misha Tate. Uh, Misha Tate, even as the older fighter, showed in her last fight. Um, she was plenty strong in round three. She got the TKO there against her opponent. Um, she's looked good in round four, round five of her fights in the past. She seems very serious about training. She looks like she's in good shape. Um, whereas Caitlin Vieira, I've seen her slow down even at the end of round one. Again, a big frame. She has a tendency to get off of her script, 
start wasting energy. Um, that could happen here with Tate. And I think the, the cardio, you'll see the edge is going to be on the, on the side of the older fighter here, Tate. For boxing, they're pretty much even. Um, Tate's not an amazing boxer. She uses her boxing and her, and her kickboxing, all that to set up her takedowns. Um, same thing for Vieira. Though at times Vieira thought she could box and she tried to bang with Aldana and she got completely clipped. Um, as for grappling skills, I'm giving an edge to Misha Tate. What I don't like about Caitlin Vieira's grappling is that she can get in positions where she's in a situation where she's in the advantageous position. And then she'll lose that because she either makes a poor mistake or goes for some kind of submission. So, you know, she breaks those rules, right? You don't lose position for a submission. Um, bottom line is across the board here, unless Caitlin Vieira can literally hurt Misha Tate, like really hurt her. And I haven't seen her have that punching power. It doesn't show up on her, on her past topology. A lot of decision wins for her. Um, and when she has won by a finish, it's been some kind of a triangle choke or something like that. So with all that said, I did go back and forth. I originally was, was on the younger fighter and I was thinking, oh man, you know, Misha Tate, um, you know, she's older, the whole deal. Look, Misha Tate's not that old. This is a hand-picked opponent for her. I think she gets the win. She's talking about making a title run again. I don't know if that's actually going to come to fruition, but for right now, the second fight back from retirement, she's still a good name. The UFC still wants to put some stock behind her. She's still going to sell some tickets. You could see her being, for example, on uh, even the main event for a prelim or on a, or on a main card for you know upcoming UFC a big event. So um, I like Tate to win the fight. It makes sense when you think a little bit more about it. I think uh, the veteran here gets the win. All right, just to summarize our picks here to win, we like Misha Tate, Sean Brady, Ronnie Yaya, Taylor Santos, Davey Grant, Pat Sabatini, Natan Levy, Luma Lukbumi, Terrence McKinney, Arichi Lang, Sean Soriano, and Sam Hughes. The dogs that we like to highlight here that we're on, we like Sam Hughes as a dogger pass to start the night off. We also like the second women's bout on the prelim card, Luma Lukbumi, to win her fight. And we also like Davey Grant as a dogger pass on the main card. The fights that we feel the most confidence with in terms of the picks to win, we like Misha Tate in the main event. We like Sean Brady in the co-main event. On the prelim card, we like Natan Levy, um, Arichi Lang, and Terrence McKinney. So we'll have a different show this week to talk about the prop bets and a few parlays that we like um, as well. But thanks for joining us in this breakdown. We hope it was helpful for you. If you like this episode, please like and subscribe, share with your friends. And as usual, if you haven't taken a look, take a look at our description. We've got the film library there for you so you take a look at some of the prior fights of the fighters that were on this card. Thanks again for joining us. Have a wonderful day, evening, morning, wherever you're at. Take care.